Can't go to cities cause they're all locked down. I can't hug me grandkids, they're in the next town. And even with my mask on, you can still see me frown. I still call Australia home. That determination to stand up for what you believe in is being asked of us more now than ever before, isn't it? It is. I think it's offering us opportunity to really garner some of that determination and strength and courage that you seem to have had your whole life. I've never actually recognised it as any kind of a strength because I actually thought everybody was like that. I'm now seeing it as a strength because a lot of people are saying things to me that I find really hard to carry, like <clears throat> you're extraordinary and um, right. you're a great Australian patriot. But I, I feel like I'm functioning the way I'm meant to function. It's normal for me to function that way. And so I've thought everybody functioned that way. And yeah. And I also believe that uh, I also thought everybody who was born in Australia or who is an Australian citizen was a patriot. Why do I stand out? I, yeah. That's what really troubles me. It's brought me to tears mm. to mm. think that I stand out. I'm just. You got to accentuate the positive. Wow, I feel good. A little bit of feel good goes a long way. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just fad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? Hello and welcome to another show, Accentuating the Positive with Karen Swain. As always, so wonderful to be with you all again. Well, today, oh, and please remember to subscribe and like and leave a comment and all that stuff that I ask and go and check out my website if you want to know more about me. Today, I have an extraordinary man to introduce you to. Many of you, especially if you're Australian, have probably heard of him, Captain Graham Hood. Welcome to the show, Graham. Thanks, Karen. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, let me just read your bio and then, uh, and then people will understand what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about all sorts of things. But Graham sent me this fabulous bio in the first person and I've sort of turned it around to read it to you. There comes a time in every man's life when he is called to stand in the shadow of his own conscience. For Graham, that time is right now. Captain Graham Hood was a pilot for 53 years. He followed a dream he had when he was five years old to fly. In those 53 years, he was proud to be in command of, a, of Qantas for 32 years. Graham had a wonderful career that saw him in the company of incredible professionals. But his dream looked set to fail as a result of leaving school when he was 13 and having a criminal record by the time he was 17. Despite this, he was determined to push through and make his dream of flight a reality. In 2021, Graham chose to terminate his illustrious career two years shy of retiring for one simple reason. He found that the medical mandates and the passport, passport requirements were reprehensible, knowing they were adopted by a corporation when the government did not have legal standing under any constitution was more than he could stand. And from this frustration, he was inspired to speak out publicly, making a video of his objections that has now been seen by millions of people across the globe. It went completely viral, didn't it, Graham? 
Bet yeah. you never yeah. bet you never thought that was going to do that. I, no, I didn't. For those people that haven't seen it, he starts off singing and we might do a bit of singing today and he's putting on his, his uniform. It's a fabulous video. With thousands of responses begging him to keep speaking for Australia, which is being portrayed badly in the global spotlight. And Graham says... When I was a kid, I was bullied, not because I looked different, but because I hung out with people that did look different. I wanted them to feel okay around someone, and I'm still that same way today. I stand against any corruption or government that stands over its people, and that's why I'm here now. Graham feels his integrity is worth more than his career, and on that rock, he stands for all professionals who are about to lose their careers because they have declined the right to make a rational, informed consent. It's time we regained the lost spirit of Australian Graham Hood. Okay, where do we go from here? I'd love to get into your childhood because your story sounds fascinating. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. <laughs> so so what, was, what was happening to you when you were like 13? And 17, you were getting in trouble. Yeah, well, you know, I, it, it goes way back beyond that, of course. I mean, we're, we're all products of our upbringing and, and the families that we, we're brought up in. And a great many families are dysfunctional, even more so as we go through, uh, go forward into, our, into our, our time here on earth. I was in a very dysfunctional family. Mum and dad uh, were children of the Great Depression and um, they, they got married just before World War II. And my dad went off to war. He was at war for five years. Mum uh, had no money and no support. Um, she had a very troubled childhood. I believe she was a victim of childhood sexual abuse uh, herself by, at the hands of her father. And um, my mum struggled to find any love in the world for her. She was a very um, broken lady who, um, who had a lot of reasons behind her brokenness. But she was a lovely woman, um, a lovely woman who uh, did her very best for me, as my dad did. But they were, she was an alcoholic. Um, uh, I believe she had a relationship addiction. Uh, she was unfaithful to my dad many times as a result of her brokenness. And, um, and they struggled through marriage for 40-something years and then broke up. Um, but my brother, who was 12 years older than me, left home when I was five. And I felt like I was the... I was the stitch that held them together as a couple. I became a massive codependent. Um, I said to one of my mates at school once, what happens to you if your mum and dad get divorced? And he says, oh, you go to an orphanage. And I believed that. That was, that was all of a sudden became my subconscious bottom line belief about where I was heading. So I then became driven to hold my family together, hold my parents together so that I didn't have to go to an orphanage. And so I... Uh, I, I would lie to each of my parents. I'd go out to my dad when he was mowing the lawn with a glass of water and I'd say, oh, dad, mum sent me out with this glass of water for you. And she said while she was pouring it, just what a great husband you are and what a great dad you are. And, and he'd look at me and she'd say, he'd say, did she really say that? And I said, yeah. And then I'd go back in with the empty glass and I'd, I'd say, oh, dad was just having a drink of water, mum, and he's just saying it's lovely to see you in the kitchen window. And and I, five years of age I was doing this. And... Um, I carried that all through my life. You know, I just took responsibility for holding the family together. And boy, oh boy, it was, it was devastating to me. And, uh, but in that, there was a sense of disconnection as well. I felt really disconnected uh, within the family because the main focus was on my brother who left when I was young, trying to get him back and trying to work out what was going on with him and them striving to try and keep their marriage together. And I just seemed to be on the back burner. 
and that disconnection just grew and grew. And um, uh, the bullying that I talked about was in, in schoolyards early. Uh, I noticed there were lots of kids with their legs in irons from polio. And I thank God for the polio vaccine because that meant I didn't catch that. And uh, there are also kids with gross deformities from uh, thalidomide. Um, so we're seeing this two spectrums of science, you know, uh, one contradicting the other. Uh, um, and my little friend Andre had a hand that was sticking out of his right shoulder like this, like a little claw, and he was persecuted beyond belief. And my other mate Chris dragging his leg around in an iron. It was just, it was really hard to put up with that. So I hung around with them, and every time they got bullied, I was in the bullying. I was on the receiving end of it. And I've always hated that kind of um, uh, treatment of others. I, I, I just, I think everybody has a right to be in their own space and without being persecuted. And that's why what's going on today is so offensive to me. But um, my mum and dad struggled. We moved around a lot. My dad was in construction. Uh, we moved around a fair bit. I was never in one school more than a couple of years at a time. And eventually um, my dad bought a block of land in the Sutherland Shire and uh, he didn't have enough money to build a house. So they bought a 15 foot caravan and put that on the block. And that was when I was uh, about 11, 10 or 11. And then as I went to first year at high school, I left primary school with a photographic memory. I didn't never had to study or do anything like that. And, and then when, uh, when the testes dropped and uh, the hormones kicked in, I lost the photographic memory. It also coincided with a time in my life when, uh, when I, was, uh, I contracted rheumatic fever and mum and dad both working to save money to build a house. I ended up living in this caravan by myself every day when they were at work at about age 12, getting over six months of, uh, of rheumatic fever. Uh, they, they didn't know enough about education to get me schoolwork to keep me going. Um, and they, um, they just went off to work and they worked very long hours. And I was left in this 15 foot caravan in the bush all by myself every day. And uh, I just got more and more bored. And it was then that I discovered uh, a couple of Playboy magazines that, uh, that were hidden somewhere in the, in the caravan. I, I'd go exploring everywhere looking for something to get into mischief with. And lo and behold, I, um, I discovered my, uh, the, the first stages of my addiction to pornography. Um, I had no idea what, it, what was happening to me physically when I looked at these images. And um, I, I realised, I sent a mental uh, message to myself then that because I was doing this all the time, that I was a deviant, I was, a, I was going to be a dirty old man. And as a result of that, my life was going to be uh, forever perplexed to say the least. And it was a subconscious bottom line belief that had no foundation at all, but it's what happens. I had no one to talk to about it. I had, uh, I, I couldn't go to my dad or mum about it because I'd have been in trouble. Uh, I felt there was no one to talk to. So I grew up with this and it eventuated that when I'd finished uh, with the rheumatic fever and I was sent back to high school uh, just after the, the first year, I think it was early into second year. Uh, my first class back at school, first period was a maths class. And I remember walking into the maths class, not knowing what was going on. I'd been away for so long. I sat down in the usual spot that I had. Nobody talked to me in the class and the teacher uh, walked in with a, um, I remember his name, but I won't mention it. I'll never forget it. But he walked in with a grey dust coat on and a stick under his arm, which was how he presented every time. He had no personality at all. And he walked into the, put his stick down and he grabbed a piece of chalk and he wrote up an algebraic equation on the board. Uh, 
And he then asked me, without even looking at me, he said, Hood, come up and solve this problem. And I looked at what was on the board. And when I left, we were doing long division. And now there's letters up there, not numbers. And I'm thinking, what's that got to do with maths? And I went up and I, he handed me a piece of chalk and I tried to do something and people were laughing at me. And, uh, and he hit me across the back with a stick and he said, you haven't done any work at all, have you? And I said, no, I've been sick. And he said, that's no excuse. You should have been keeping up with it. And then he prodded me into the corner with my face in the corner next to the blackboard for the whole period while kids flicked bits of paper at me. And uh, I got very angry uh, at the end. He said to me near the end of the period, have you been taking any of this in? And I said, how can I with my face stuck in the corner? And we got to pushing and shoving. And next minute I was in the principal's office getting six cuts of the cane. And that's the last day I attended school. Uh, I then went into truancy. I hid in the bush. I found a cave in the bush near where the caravan was. Uh, I, I used to go to, I used to steal money from mum and dad and go to news agents and buy girly magazines. And I just degenerated into this life of addiction from that age that, um, and, and my, my juvenile criminal conviction came as a result when I had a job working for a department store in Sydney, I actually falsified refund documents to get money to buy pornography. And I was charged with, with um, theft. And uh, I was put on a good behaviour bond. And um, so that's how we got to that particular point in my life. Wow, Graham. Wow. <laughs> what a story. Actually reminds me of my childhood too. Yeah, education was not so enlightened back in those days either. And my one of my best friends, um, our parents were friends, uh, was one of the thalidomide children as well. So it's, it's, it's interesting with what's happening in our world that the whole thalidomide thing, there's a fabulous documentary on YouTube all about thalidomide uh, that we're kind of revisiting, um, you know, like you start putting medical mandates on people and putting drugs into people and people think it's a really good idea and then you don't see the immediate results but you see the results later, like all the children born through the thalidomide. Like I remember my mother said that my best friend's mother who took the thalidomide urged her to take it when she was pregnant with me said it's fabulous you know it helps with morning sickness it's such a good pill the doctors are all recommending it everyone's taking it everyone's doing it is this sounding familiar and mum said no I don't need that stuff she was one of those stoic I don't need all that stuff I don't need that stuff I don't need to take that stuff and I because she didn't take it I've got all my limbs so interesting isn't it Graham it is it really is and and you know uh so that, you, know, you go back in the 1930s and 40s, even 50s, doctors were recommending uh, tobacco as a as a way of healing lung disease. Right. Uh, so we, we've got all these we've got all these examples throughout medical history where we've been led up the garden path and um, by right. no research or falsified research, and all of a sudden we've reached a period in our history where we don't have to worry about that anymore. I don't think so. Right. Exactly. Anyway, <laughs> I've got a lot to say about that, but I'm not going to interrupt your story. Let's get more into your story. So. The desire to fly, you said that at five you wanted to do it. So what happened when you're like 17 and you're still dreaming of being a pilot? What happened next? Okay, well, I discovered my, my desire to fly when I was pretending to be a pilot on the, on the chook house roof in the backyard at Wollongong, sitting in a fruit box with a garden rake upside down like a steering wheel. And my friend David was sitting behind me with a broomstick and he was a tail gunner and we were flying bombing missions over Germany. And we get shot down about 10 times a day and we'd bail out off the, chook, off the top of the chook house and land in the chook poo and lie there, pretend to be dead for a minute. Then we'd scramble up the ladder and do it again. 
And one day while lying in the Chukpu looking at the sky, it was a very overcast day, a thin layer of cloud over Wollongong. And uh, a super constellation flew over the big tritale uh, aeroplane of the 50s that was the international plane of that day. And it was a Qantas plane and it must have been on its way to Melbourne. And they were about 12,000 feet and they were what we call cloud surfing. They'd obviously seen a flat layer of cloud and it's a wonderful experience as a pilot to skim across the top of the cloud at high speed. But as they were doing it, they were cutting a path in the cloud. So was, there was this blue strip of blue sky behind them. And I looked up and I was mesmerised and I said, that's what I have to do. So when I got to, um, when I left school, uh, stopped going to school at 13, I was actually given a dispensation to leave school early. Um, I don't know how that was arranged. All I know is I was told by the deputy principal that I had to get a job and I had to come back every once a week with a, with a copy of my, uh, my, um, my payslip and show him that I've been working. Well, I did that for the first week and I never bothered. I was working as an apprentice butcher at Miranda Fair Shopping Centre in Sydney and I, uh, I was getting $7 a week making pets mints uh, with offal and all that sort of stuff. It was a wonderful job. And then um, uh, I realised that uh, I, could, I could learn to fly without having a proper education. All I needed was to do was to save enough money for a one-hour flying lesson once a week at Bankstown Airport. And so I, I worked, a, a, an hour flying lesson in those days was $15 and I was earning $7 a week before tax. So it was a bit of a, a, bit of a push, but I, I managed to pay for a few lessons and then it was too young for me. I got my student licence just before my 16th birthday and I was, I was too young and I didn't, really, I didn't really grasp the principles of what I was doing. So I kept working more and more. I had 60 different jobs before I started flying. And I was rust-proofing cars and concreting and, and working in all these manual jobs. And I managed to save enough money to, uh, to go with Dad's help, uh, a $3,000 for a one-year course at uh, Cessnock in the Hunter Valley. And I went there and I learned to fly in an aviation college. And uh, it was a real struggle because I had no education. They were talking about, uh, they were talking about the coefficient of lift and you know, lift-drag ratios and all these things that I had to learn to pass my exams. And because I had no maths, it was a real struggle. But I managed to, to get my way through it. And, um, and then I, uh, I, I carried on uh, learning to fly, paying for flying lessons after that. And I got my first flying job on a cattle station in Western Queensland. Uh, it was three properties together that were three and a half million acres, 12,000 square miles of, of, uh, of outback. And I was a mustering pilot and uh, all my flying was low level. Um, it was awesome fun. It was probably one of the most uh, fun-filled jobs I'd ever had in aviation, chasing cattle and rounding them up and doing a, a incredible things, pushing the envelope. And that led to crop dusting. Uh, after that, I, I was used to flying at low level. I got offered a job as a crop dusting pilot and I was trained. They paid for my training and my career progressed from there through general aviation, flying charter flying and all that sort of stuff. Always, always underqualified, just not qualified enough to go the next step and having to push myself to learn more and study more and do more courses. And every course was a struggle. But then, uh, then I eventually got into uh, a, uh, a charter company in Rockhampton, flying twin engine planes just for cattle buyers, flying, flying them around cattle sales and things. And it was there that I had a desire to fly for the regional airlines. And I used to love the idea of flying a Fokker friendship into Armidale or Tamworth or 
And I thought, what I'd really love to do with my life is be a bush pilot. And there was a company in Cairns called Bush Pilot Airways, and they had an amazing reputation. They were a very old company. They had incredible equipment. They did a lot of outback flying, really challenging flying. And they had Douglas DC-3s, the old Dakota, the biscuit bomber from World War II, and they had various other aircraft. And anyhow, I thought I'd really love to work for them. So I wrote them when I was based in Rockhampton. I'd had about 1,500 flying hours under my belt. And I wrote to them and I said, I really want to work for you. And they wrote back to me and said, well, you're way underqualified. Um, you need at least 3,000 flying hours and you need to have all these other qualifications, which I didn't have. Um, I still had to get. And they said, so in three years' time, when you met all those requirements, write to us and we'll consider giving you an application. And I thought, no. Nah. I've always been pretty determined. I thought, nah, <laughs> I'm going to write to you every two weeks. So every time I got a pay slip from my boss, I'd sit down and write him a letter saying, I'm still interested. Uh, in the last two weeks, I've flown an extra, you know, 70 or 80 hours, and I'm still very keen. I'm, I really want an interview, da-da-da. Every two weeks, I sent it. And then I started ringing their receptionist and saying, you know, can you help me? I'm trying to get a job. What have I got to do? And she, she was very helpful. She'd been in the company for years. And she said, look, you know, I've seen your applications. And she said, just, you know, you know, you, you haven't officially applied for anything yet. There's no positions, but, you know, you're interested and just stay interested. So I did that for about six months. And then I got a telegram saying, uh, we want you to attend an interview in Brisbane. So I had to jump in my rusty old Cortina and drive down to Brisbane. And uh, I rang this receptionist and I said, I've got an interview. She said, yeah, but that, look, she said, I slotted you in for an interview but you're not going to get a job. I want you to experience the interview. She felt sorry for me. So she said, uh, you won't get the job. We're after three pilots for three positions and we've got 80 applicants and you're the least qualified out of all of them. So you won't get it. And I said, oh, really? And it was like, you know, <laughs> it's like going up to a pretty girl and saying, you know, what are the chances we can go out, <laughs> go out one time? And she'd say one in a million. And I'd go, yes. <laughs> so anyway, I turn up at the at the interview and I walk in and there's all these guys dressed in suits sitting in the corridor and I'm I'm in my suit and I'm I was one of the last to go in and I went in and I spent an hour and a half in front of a panel of three very senior pilots in the company and they threw everything at me and uh, it was I thought oh man this is terrible but I, I lived into my integrity they asked me questions about my 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 current employer that were not very, he had a bit of a reputation and they wanted me to sort of dob him in. And I said, look, if you want to ask questions about my employer, I suggest you contact him and ask him. It's not my position to talk about him. And, and so, and I, you know, anyway, um, I left and, and I asked the receptionist, when are they going to let people know? She said in a week and at 10 days had gone by and I hadn't heard anything. So I kept ringing her and she said, no, they haven't made a decision yet. And then one day I get a telegram asking me to report to Cairns for training on the Douglas DC-3 as a co-pilot for Bush Pilot Airways. And I thought, what? So packed everything up on the roof rack, put the kids in the back, and my first wife and I drove up to Cairns and, and I turned up at the airport at Cairns to the chief pilot's office on the day of arrival and walked in and he handed me the manuals, handed me a training schedule, and he gave me a slip to go and get uniforms fitted and all that sort of stuff. And... Uh, and he welcomed me aboard, got me to sign the contract, gave me my pilot's wings, you know, which is a treasured possession of every pilot. And uh, he shook my hand. And as I walked out the door, I turned around and said to him, I know I was the least, the least um, capable or qualified of 80 applicants, 
how come I got the job? And he looked at me and laughed and he said, we thought it would, we'd either give you a job or buy a new filing cabinet. So we thought it was easy to give you a job. <laughs> and I hadn't looked back from there. Now, now I, I did a lot of great flying in Cape, around Cape York and um, I had a wonderful career with them. And then they became an outfit called Air Queensland. They changed their name. And then Air Queensland had a big chunk of the regional flying in, in Queensland and the Territory. And there was a war between then TAA and Anstead to take over Air Queensland and, and assimilate them into the bigger company. And TAA won that battle and we were assimilated into TAA. Uh. And because I was a pilot in that company, even though I wasn't qualified to fly jets at that stage, I was taken into TAA and to keep flying the aeroplane I was on. And then I had to do another uh, course in order to be able to qualify to even start training on the jets. And that was that was like doing a crash university course over three months. And I, I took leave without pay. I did that. And I ended up ducting the whole of the country in my results on that, on that training and those exams for all four subjects that I sat in one hit. And uh, then I, I was transferred onto the Boeing 737 in Melbourne as a co-pilot. TAA became Australian Airlines with a name change. And then in the, um, in the, in the early 90s, Qantas decided to merge with, with Australian Airlines and I became a Qantas captain without ever having an airline interview. So I was like sucked up wow. like fluff off the carpet into the vacuum cleaner. So that's, that's sort of a, an expansive view of how I got to where I'm at now. Yeah, wow. Well, your powers of determination were definitely... Um... Definitely working for you, Graham. <laughs> They've worked for you your whole life. Uh, I love. I was going to say, so why did they hire you? But you answered. You answered that question. We either hire you to shut you up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And you know, I love talking. I've mentored a lot of young guys into aviation, and and even my daughter, my youngest daughter, always had a dream to be a ballerina, oh. and she. She was told by so many ballet teachers that she'd never make it in, in the profession. But she danced all around the world because uh, every time someone said, you'll never make it, you, you're just not up to the kind of rigours that the ballet offers. Uh, I taught her back then just, you know, never take no for an answer. And she would always say to her critics, thank you for sharing, and then just keep going anyway. And she, she danced uh, all over the world. So, Yes. Yes, I had a conversation with a girlfriend, yes, last night who came over here. You know, she's been let loose. We've been let free in Sydney. Ah, we can move five k's away from where we live. So she came to visit me. But, uh, yeah, that determination to stand up for what you believe in is being asked of us more now than ever before, isn't it? It is. I think it's offering us opportunity to really garner some of that determination and strength and courage that you seem to have had your whole life. I've never actually recognised it as any kind of a strength because I actually thought everybody was like that. Right. Uh, I'm now seeing it as a strength because um, a lot of people are saying things to me that I find really hard to carry, like <clears throat> you're extraordinary and um, right. you're a great Australian patriot, but I, I feel like I'm functioning the way I'm meant to function. It's normal for me to function that way. And so I've thought everybody functioned that way. And yeah. I also thought everybody who was born in Australia or who is an Australian citizen was a patriot. Why do I stand out? I, yeah. th that's what really troubles me. It's brought me to tears mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. think that I stand out. I'm just you know, trying I to stand out. 
well, what, how you've lived your life, <laughs> especially sending a letter to an employee every couple of weeks, <laughs> knowing that they would reject you, that's called fearlessness, right? That is living outside the ramifications of fear. And what has happened in the world is that we're marinating in fear in this world. And most people are buying the story as this is just how life is. You know, like, and so somebody that doesn't buy into the fear and does things, you know, regardless of consequence is seen as a leader. But I think you're absolutely right, Graham. We all need to step up. We all need to step up and be the leaders in our own life and not buy into somebody else's fearful, you know, control well, what, system. What's fear? And, you know, the acronym is false evidence appearing Very real. real. Um, and and we're we're trapped in that. And I mean, I I can't believe the persecution of um, millions in Australia because there are millions who have not been able to give informed consent, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and it makes me think that those who rushed into this procedure uh, are just relying on on blind faith right. uh, in something that doesn't re- that doesn't deserve to have their faith. I have a blind right. faith in Christ, but. And that throughout my my last 15 years in particular has got me to a point where I actually, I don't think God exists. I know God exists in my heart. Mm. I know that. Uh, Even though I don't much like corporate religion, um, I have a relationship with a higher power and his name for me is Jesus Christ. But when people put their faith and trust in fallible institutions, uh, like in America, the CDC and the FDA, and all, all, they, all they, and then New South Wales Health and the health, the, the federal health department and state health bureaucrats. These are all fallible systems, uh, all all uh, crunched into a, a into a funnel of a legislation and persecution. If you happen to disagree with the mandate, and massive grants of billions and, and in some case perhaps trillions of dollars being spent on on these things, where the research is being carried out by in so-called independent groups who are funded by the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, if that doesn't get people's alarm bells ringing, then I don't know what does. And some people say, I'm living in fear of, of a conspiracy. Right. I'm not living in fear at all. I don't care whether, if I die, I'm fine with that. Right, exactly. If I get, if I get COVID, um, I'll do everything in my power to, to, to beat it without being a burden on any health system, even though I've paid over $7 million in tax in my life. Uh, I will, I will, um, you know, my wife's a registered nurse and we will treat ourselves at home with the best that we've been able to muster here on the farm. And we're, we're living a healthy lifestyle. We're, we're, um, we're, uh, we're going to plant-based diet. And, yeah. You know, I heard you. yeah. I mean, so we're taking precautions. You're taking, yeah. I heard you say that on another interview. Oh, I'm, I'm going to turn and have a plant-based diet. And I'm like, good on you, Graham. Yeah. Uh, Yes, there's lots to talk about around this, but uh, I want to get into, uh, um, you know, throughout this illustrious career, like when you were flying when you were young, you still had this porn addiction. What was the precipice? Like what changed you? What made you find Jesus Christ? Like what what made you wake up to the solution of your dilemma? Because I know that even when it started, you, you realized that it was a dilemma in your life and yet addiction says that even though I know this is bad for me, I keep doing it. That's what addiction says, right? That's right. So addiction, addiction, and I'm a thousand percent confident in this, uh, in this uh, description of addiction. Addiction is a band-aid used to mask the pain of disconnection, of, of not being loved or of being rejected. 
Um, that is that is the purpose of addiction. So what happens to people when they're addicts? When they're caught out, they're normally condemned and isolated by their family or society. And that makes them feel even less connected, which drives them deeper into the spiral of addiction. And that's what was happening in my life. Um, I was... I was living in a particular way, in a in a dark way. Um, I used to I used to visit houses of ill repute as a young man. I, uh, as a result of my addiction, I found it very hard to relate to to women on an intimate level. And so, always wanted a girlfriend, but um, always found the the intimacy side of all that very troubling. So I used to I used to go where there was no pressure. Um, so I would pay and. Um, and uh, I mean, a lot of people, I have no awkward being this honest, but um, I've learned to live to honesty because when I, when I speak like this, other people have permission to tell me their stuff. And so I get a lot of people talking to me, sharing the same story. So, I, you know, as in my first marriage, I, I became, over the years, I became less and less faithful um, and I had no faith in anything. And I became a person who was, um, who, was fitting into the typical narrative of men in this country that all men are motherless, motherless sons. You know what I'm saying? All men are bastards. And, and I was living into that. And back in the seventies and eighties, that was, you know, uh, if, if you had an affair or something while you were married, your mates would high five you and you were a hero, you know, and I look back on that now and see how horribly destructive all that was, but I lived in that era. And, um, and I got to a stage where the more and more I degenerated into pornography, um, the more and more I was losing my identity. And I got to a stage where once living in Melbourne, I was upstairs in the house, in, a, in, the, in the study of the house I, I was living in. And my family were downstairs in the family room and my kids were in their early teens. And um, my young daughter, who always saw me as a hero, uh, you know, daddy, the airline pilot, wandered up the stairs and I didn't hear her coming and I was watching pornography and I didn't know she was behind me. And uh, when I'd finished, I turned the computer screen off and I saw, the, you know, how the screen goes black and you see your reflection in the screen. I always used to look at that for a minute and feel absolute abhorrence at who I was. And I used to think that a clawed hand would come out from the screen and grab me by the throat and drag me in there. It was horrible. But this night I looked and I saw her reflection over my shoulder and I realised she'd been standing there watching me. And um, I turned around and looked at her and she just looked at me with an expressionless face. And um, she turned away and just shook her head and walked down the stairs. And she never said anything to her mum or anything. And uh, something in me died. And uh, from that moment on, I, I uh, went into a fetal position and stayed there for two days sobbing. And I promised myself I would never, ever, ever do that ever again, that I was over it, that that was too much of a price to pay. And then after I'd finished grieving that process and got out of the fetal position, I went straight back to the computer and started watching it again. And it had me by the throat. And, you know, there are uh, more than 80% of people in the Western world consume pornography in some form or another. And of those 80%, 20% will become addicted. And I was one of those 20%. And so that's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. Um, so I kept uh, I, I kept thinking things like, you know, I have to have a new life. I have to have a new start in life. So we, I decided I would transfer from Melbourne base to Brisbane base, and I would move the family up there and take the same tired old movie to a different theatre 
basically, because nothing was going to change because the theatre had changed, the location had changed. And my first wife was reluctant to go, but she went along with it anyway because I was always very persuasive. And we went up to Brisbane and it wasn't a good move. Um, the addiction kept getting worse. The situation never got better. Our relationship kept getting worse and worse. We weren't meeting each other's emotional needs. And I got to a stage after a couple of years in Brisbane where I was just um, thinking the only way out for me, the only way to be rid of this horror is to end my life. And in 2006... I set a date for the 18th of August, which was the date I was going to terminate and uh, insurance policies were all paid up. I was going to make it look like an accident. Uh, so the family had uh, had all the financial benefits from my passing and I convinced myself that the world was going to be better off without me, including my family, and I was going to make it look like an accident. And I'd set that date because that was a particular date that uh, that would would have uh, resonated with uh, with my wife um, um, I was actually our relationship had gone downhill so much that uh, we had a love-hate thing going on and I was at a stage where I just wanted to kill myself to teach her a lesson um, which is really sensible right I'm going to die to teach you a lesson not and so um, I was I was uh, trapped in this addiction if, if I had eight hours spare in a day where no one was around and I was in in loneliness if my wife had gone away for the day and I was on a day off I'd sit in front of the computer for eight hours watching pornography I mean it was just horrible and then um, as I was getting towards the date of my termination of my life uh, early August 2006 uh, I went on a trip which was to be my last trip as a pilot uh, it was a trip across to Perth and back and it was on that trip that um, uh, I met the woman I'm now married to um, and it was a life-changing experience. She was a passenger and I bumped into her on the, on the aeroplane. We had a short conversation. She was absolutely stunning in every way inside and out. And um, we had a short conversation. I had 24 hours in Perth to do the red eye home the next day. We spent all the next day together talking and six weeks later, my marriage was over and she had moved from WA to the Gold Coast to live with me. And I started my divorce proceedings and um, about 14 months later, we were married and baptised into church. And I realised I realized at that stage that there had been a divine intervention in my life because prior to meeting her, I was an atheist. And um, I had a conversation with my daughter who was the youngest daughter who caught me watching porn had, was the ballet dancer and she was living and working in Egypt at the time and she used to ring me once a week and um, we were talking and she said to me that she was about to become a Muslim. And this was, you know, six months before, this was early 2006 and I, I just was outraged. I said, for goodness sake, you can't do that. That's that's stupid. Why would you want to do that? Where, you know, have to wear a burqa and, and be subjugated and and, uh, and and be inferior to men and all. Why, would, why on earth haven't you seen, not without my daughter, haven't you read that book and everything? And she said, Dad, you don't know what it's like. That's not what it's like. She said, I, I live with these families. And then she said, anyway, you tell me, tell me what you believe in because, you know, you've given us no spiritual upbringing in our life. You tell me what you believe in. And I realised then that that was a big question that I couldn't answer off the top of my head. I said, I have to think about that. I'll tell you next week. And that week I flew. I was flying over the Barrier Reef and the Nullarbor Plains and I was looking at Australian and watching thunderstorms in a different thing at my hand and wondering 
how I could just think for that to happen and it would happen. Why are my fingerprints and my DNA different to his and sitting next to me? And anyway, I came to a realisation that week and I said to her, I've worked out something profound. I think there must be a God. (laughs) I can't stand religion. I think religion is a business of God conducted by men and they stink at it. Uh And she said, good, I'm really glad I made the decision. So I came to a conclusion that there is a power greater than, than us that is ultimately in control of this. And I, I said it was God. And then uh, everything, my addiction kept going. And then uh, um, just before the time I was going to kill myself, um, I had an argument with my then wife that was pretty, very verbally abusive. She was, um, she was, yeah, she treated me badly. And, you know, I, I'm not saying I didn't deserve it, but... And I just walked out of the out of the garage in my house, and I put my arms up to the sky, and I just yelled out, "I can't do this anymore." Mm-hmm. And got in my car to go and pick up my daughter, who'd since come back from Egypt, and she was at the doctor's. And uh, I picked her up, and I was in tears, and said, "What's the matter?" And I said, "I can't be with your mother anymore." And she said, "What are you going to do?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to take eighteen months to get my affairs in order, and then I'm going to rent a shed in the bush, build furniture, and listen to John Williamson music." <laughs> 10 minutes before that I decided in my head you are I was saying to my wife mentally you are you days I'm going to be dead and you're going to be all kinds of pain hang on hang on Graham we've got some um, technical issues here you keep breaking up so it's quite hard to hear you continue <laughs> okay we um, yeah so um, after the argument I had with my wife and I walked out and I threw my hands up to the sky and said I can't do this anymore Prior to doing throwing my hands into the air, my mental, my thought processes were, uh, you just wait uh, because in a few days I'm going to be dead and you're going to be in a whole world of pain and you're going to know why. Because I used to say to my wife uh, at the time, my first wife, that I, I, re- I was really concerned about some of the thoughts I was having and she would barely react. She didn't know how to react in fairness. She would just say to me, don't worry, you'll get over it. And um and so I'd, I'd gone from six months before accepting that there must be a God, but I didn't like religion. Then we had that argument. I walked out of the house, threw my, my arms open wide to the sky and yelled out, I can't do this anymore, thinking you wait in a few days, I'm going to be dead. And then 10 minutes later, I'm talking to my daughter and this plan came out of my mouth that I was going to take 18 months to get my affairs in order. I was going to rent a shed in a bush somewhere and build furniture, which is one of my passions, and listen to John Williamson music. And she said, well, that's good. That's good. And I said, okay. And then I I thought for a minute, where did that come from? I had no idea. So then uh, a couple of days after that was when I I, uh, jumped in the aeroplane and and went on my last flight where I met uh, my now wife, Michelle. And uh, I just saw that as divine intervention. Um, In the first 15 minutes we conversed, I told her all about my darkness. Right. And, and, you know, we were in a, you know, we were at the front end of an aeroplane in the forward galley. I'd just gone to the toilet and and anyway, we met there and we had a struck up a conversation and I said to her, you know, I'm dealing with some issues. She, she just came across as someone I could talk to. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I came across that way to her because she revealed that she, uh, she had put herself through uni. She had three university degrees. She'd raised four kids pretty much on her own. Her partner was uh, in and out of the relationship all the time and um, 
and that, that she had overcome childhood sexual abuse or was trying to overcome it. She was molested uh, and sexually abused pretty much every weekend uh, for six years when she was a child at the hands of a church elder. And, um, and she was obviously, she had it, she was a very formidable person and uh, she had a suit of armor on that was obviously designed to protect her pain. And I saw through that and I just thought, I've got nothing to lose. She's just amazing. I want to keep talking to her. So I just treated her like she wasn't wearing armor at all. And that disarmed her actually. And um, so the next day we talked, uh, we talked for, uh, for hours and hours and hours. And um, then we decided that we, we had fallen in love with each other in the first 15 minutes of our meeting. And she said to this day that God whispered in her ear, you can trust this man. So how a woman who's been sexually abused and treated bad sexually by men all of her life would trust somebody who's just confessed to a sex addiction can only be divine intervention. Right. It's really interesting, isn't it? Really it is. So, and, and to this day, I have, I've always wanted to be trustworthy and I increase, try and increase my capacity to be a better man every day for her. I want to be the best man I can be for her because she deserves to have the best man she can have. And um, so I see myself as the ranger in her national park. I want to, I want her to soar uncontrolled like an eagle. Um, you know, I, I love wedge-tailed eagles and we see them fly over our property here a bit. And there's always one flying higher than the other, calling out to it like it's talking to it and they communicate with a high-pitched drill. And every now and then they change levels and the other one goes above and they keep watching each other's backs and I love them that much. I've flown with them in a light airplane. I've flown up alongside them. And, and uh, I love them that much that it would break my heart to see one in a cage. Mm. So um, my ideal of seeing a wedge-tailed eagle is in its natural habitat. So I try and create a natural habitat for Michelle to thrive in that uh, is without control or coercion or any kind of manipulation from me. My only role is to patrol her boundaries to protect her. I've got to know what her boundaries are. And then I've got to just wander around the boundaries and make sure that she's safe. And that's my role in our marriage. And, and her role is the same with me. She thinks the same way about me. So uh, it's a beautiful relationship built around our faith in God and built around our desire to serve other people and help restore broken lives that we've been doing for 15 years to great success, I might add. And it's, it's based on a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not the one that, that's being forced by corporate religion. Uh, it's a relationship that, that portrays God as a loving God, a beautiful God who wants nothing but the best for us. And being close to Jesus Christ for me is very reassuring. In these times when I could, I could be very easily persecuted because of my stand, I have no fear. I, I just I feel that I'm doing what I'm meant to do as a human being, guided by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in me. I've seen Jesus Christ's life manifested in ways that shows that he walked with the lepers and he went into the synagogues and copped the abuse and he loved the unlovable and he touched the untouchable. And that's how I've always been as a little boy. I've always wanted to be that kind of person because to me it's it's how we were innately designed to be. And so uh, that's how I find myself in faith. When the, when the pandemic first came out and there was a lot of memes on Facebook about toilet paper because no one could find toilet paper, uh, I remember posting something that struck a chord with someone, people on Facebook, and that, uh, you know, Jesus wasn't afraid to walk amongst the lepers, nor Lady Diana, Princess Diana, wasn't afraid to go into hospital and hug the AIDS patient. 
we've yeah. got to we've got to look at this whole contagion story i think that the contagion story is a story of fear that has been perpetuated throughout the ages to keep people in fear yeah you the only thing that is contagious is the fear. That's the story of contagion. This, yeah. yeah. Anyway, and I've been chatting to my guides or, you know, Jesus or whatever you want to call it about this, uh, about this. And um, yeah, it's a story of fear. That's the contagion that has been rife in our world for so long, for too long. And it keeps people out of their power and out of love. Yeah. Yeah. And, and contemporary corporate religion has thrived on making people afraid of God. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it has done that. I mean, you know, you look at the earliest religions um, and the way they built massive edifices to themselves, not to God, is by scaring people into giving them vast sums of money. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if, if we understand we were created to love and be loved, and that's the essence of why we have freedom of choice, you can't coerce somebody to love you because that's not love, that's fear again. Mm-hmm. All you can do is give them a freedom of choice to make the decision to love you or not, make the decision to be good or bad, to be evil or good. Um, and and with, then, then you get people give people an opportunity to express love in its purest sense. And that's why a lot of people struggle with why does God let this happen and let that happen. Right. Primary purpose of God is that for us is that we were created to love him and to love each other. And Greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for, for his friend. And greater love hath no God than to give the people who, who he created uh, the ability to make their own choices. And sadly, we have to live with the consequences of our choices. And for me, the consequences of the choices in, I made in my life before I believed in anything drove me to this point now where I thoroughly believe in a beautiful, loving way that has me want to pass on everything that's given to me by Jesus to other people I come in contact with because everything is circular. Uh, If I decided I didn't want to give trees carbon dioxide, I'd put a bag over my head to deny them having what what I give them in return for the oxygen they give me, and I'd be dead in two minutes. So we have to keep everything flowing, everything circular. And so for me, my relationship with God's like that. And and where it says to fear God, what that means is to respect to respect him because he has immense power and we we can tap into that power anytime we want to just by surrendering to that power and living in the light not living in the dark and that's where i find myself in my faith and um and it's a really easy place to be and it means i can talk to anybody without bible bashing or anything like that i mean i've recognized especially in the last few weeks that I may be the only bible that anyone ever gets to read because they're <laughs> seeing they're seeing that acted out in me you know what I mean? It's like um, I want to I want to be uh, an example of what I get out of the scriptures that I read. And uh, a guy said to me not long ago, I can't believe you're a scientific mind. I can't believe you believe in that garbage. And I said, well, I don't understand everything in the Bible, but the bits that I do understand help me to love you, even though sometimes I don't like you. Yeah, right. You know, it's interesting. I was uh, co-hosting a, a online conference recently and we were talking about where science meets spirituality and for so long we you know the the science and the spirituality have been in these two separate camps and people that were of scientific mind thought anybody that believed in any sort of religion or spirituality were crazy and woo woo and stupid you know and and so there's there's been this narrative in our world that 
Um, if you believe in Jesus or if you believe in religion or spirits or angels or life beyond death, that you're not very intellectual. And that's got to change because I think that the science of today, the quantum science of today is actually explaining what the rishis and the gurus and the spiritual teachers have been talking about for thousands of years, really. Can I give you an argument that I use when people say that to me? Yeah, sure. Uh, I had a co-pilot once say to me, you know, how can you believe in all this stuff, you know? Uh, and I just say, I choose to, and I'll leave it. And they always come back to you and they say, but wh why would you reach a decision like that? And I said, well, you believe everything was created out of a big bang, don't you? And I said, yeah. And I said, that's a theory. It's a big bang theory. It doesn't make it real. And he said, yeah, but how can the world being created 6,000 years ago be real? I said, well, it's real for me because I choose to accept it. That's my belief. I believe in creation. And I just leave it. And he came back to me and he said to me, yeah, well, I just don't get it. I said, he started the conversation by saying, how come you're different? You, you're different to when you used to be, to what you used to be. Aren't you worried about your superannuation with the GFC and everything? And I said, no, it's, it's outside my control. Anyhow, um, I said to him, all right, look, you want to have this conversation? Let's have it. Let me tell you what I think you believe. You believed you evolved from slime. Your life has no purpose. And when you die, you're going to go back into the ground and be worm tucker. And he said, <laughs> yep, I do. I said, well, I believe I was created by someone who loves me. My life has a real purpose. And when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. He said, yeah, I get that. I said, who's going to have a better day, you or me? <laughs> and then I said to him, Forget about the Bible being hard to read because it's like Shakespearean literature. It's the most published book in so many different variations in history. It's hard to read and hard to understand because of the Shakespearean literature. Let's just see it as, as a, a book. And if, you, if I could stand with you at the end of time and you could say to me, see, I told you it wasn't real, then I'd say, well, blow me down. You could have fooled me, but, boy, I've had a great life. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just leave it at that. And I keep living into that faith. Because if, if anyone sees anything in me and from all the messages I'm getting, which are really humbling and undeserved, undeserved totally, any, anything you see in me that you like is not me. It's the spirit that lives in me. Mm -hmm. It's not me because I ask the spirit to behave for me. Right. And if you like that, then that should point you to, to think aspects of your own life that you're not happy with. Mm -hmm. If anyone's criticising me, and I say it when I, I, I speak in churches or seminars or anything, if any part of my testimony has you judging me, like when I talk about my sex addiction, mm -hmm. then that's God shining a light on a defect in your character that he wants you to fix. Right. So I just turn it straight back onto people. Um, and that's the truth of it. I, I've got to sign up my driveway that says no judgment beyond this point. Because when people come to visit us and we get lots, we don't want them to feel like they're going to be judged and condemned for telling their truth. Right. And, and so... It's vitally important that we understand that when we live in the absolute truth of who we are and we step out of our denial and an acronym we use in our 12-step program for denial is don't even know I am lying. Um, when, when, we, when we step out of our denial and imagine if we everywhere we walked, every church we went into, every uh, cafe we went into, every person we passed in the street had their darkest secret tattooed on their forehead that could right. never be hidden. And we'd all look and say, oh, okay, how much easier would it be to accept people for who they are when people are real than it is behind all these facades that they wear? Mm -hmm. 
Right. You know, if, if in a church you had all these people dolled up in $3,000 suits and the best of clothes with leather-bound Bibles sitting there nodding and singing at the right times and sitting down the down the, the pew as a guy with tats and, uh, and you know, dishevelled and looked, and, and looked like he'd been sleeping under a piece of cardboard all night. Um, you know what? If you took away the facade and saw the real person at either end of the pew, they both feel they both feel incredibly humble by being in each other's presence. In actual fact, they'd be living in each other's truths, and that's why I often say to people, it's so much easier to love somebody than it is to like them. And and this guy that when I said that to him, he said to me, "How can you like? How can you love somebody you don't like?" I said, "Well, you do." He said, "I do not." I said, "You do. Your son." You don't like your son, but you love him. You don't like your son's behaviour, but if he came knocking on your door tomorrow, you'd walk, welcome him in and hug him. And the guy dissolved into tears. Mm. That, that's, that's the truth of it, you know. That's the truth. And we've discovered in 15 years of our ministry in recovery that we have to look below the, the behaviour of people to see the pain that drives it. Right. And when we understand the pain that drives their behaviour, then we have compassion for them and that compassion turns into love. And it takes away all the negative energy we have around those people. Right. Um, because I've had people so vitriolic with me in the past uh, against some of the things, some of the notions that I present. And sometimes they've had me really rolled up to the point I wanted to hit them. <laughs> and then I look at them and I think, that guy's in a lot of pain. Right. He's speaking out of he's speaking through the knothole of his own pain. Mm -hmm. And I have to what what should I do for that guy? Well, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would just love him. Mm -hmm. If if my reaction is to thump him, the opposite to that is what Jesus would do, just love him. And Jesus says to me all the time, <sighs> just just love them. And so I just love the guy. And the best way to destroy your enemy is to love him. You take away his power. I came up with a saying when I saw Michelle. Uh, forgive the man who abused her um, after many years. We tracked him down and she put her hand on, uh, She she we sat next to him on a park bench at a nursing home and, and I said to him, do you know who this is? And he said, no. And I said, well, this I've mentioned her name. I said, this is Shelley. And he grabbed her by the hand and he said, oh, it's so good to see you, Shelley. And he was stroking her on the back of the hand. And uh, he, she said, it's good to see you too. And she said, I want you to know I've driven all, we've flown all the way across country and we've driven for days to find you. And I've done that to tell you that I forgive you for what you did. And he puddled up and he stroked her on the back of the hand and he said, that's really good, Shelley. And I want you to know I forgive you too because you were just as responsible as I was. So for people that don't know what he did to her, he sexually, he was a, he was a priest in the church. No, he was he was a church elder in a in a in a um, in a um, Protestant church. Okay, but he was still a, a, in a power of position. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In, inside a religious institution. Yes, yes. A, and he was sexually abusing her for years, right? Yes. He was a family friend as well, and he was molesting her for years. And he was molesting her, and so when she went to forgive him. He took, uh, he said, that's very nice, thank you. But he didn't take any responsibility because he still blamed her. Right? He said, you're just as responsible as I was. Now, at that time, I reached up, I was crouched in front of him and I put my hand on his left shoulder and I almost crushed his shoulder and I made a fist with mm -hmm. my other hand. And Michelle put her hand up and she said, no, 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 stop, stop. And she looked up to the sky and she said, God, give me strength. And then she looked him straight in the eye and she said, despite everything you've just said, I still forgive you. 
and I looked and I looked at him and he looked flummoxed. He didn't know what to do with that. He couldn't deal with forgiveness. And it was almost like I saw a dark cloud come out of the man and run like a cutscene. Um, he was um, he was left powerless by the forgiveness. Mm-hmm. It was almost like he was demonically possessed and the forgiveness drove it out. And I looked at that and I, in that moment I coined a phrase that I use a lot. Grace and evil cannot live in the same house and evil is always the first to leave, always. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw that man lose his power and I saw the power transfer from him to her and her life has never looked back from that moment. Her story is profoundly good. Yeah. Her story is profoundly healing. Forgiveness is I, I do a lot with my clients. Uh, again, I've, I've got so much to say about that, but I don't know if I'll inject it here. Uh, but for you... Did you did your porn addiction stop when you forgave yourself? Did you did you affect that same love unto yourself in order to drive out that sort of compulsive addiction? Yeah, I, I uh, when I met Michelle, my addiction went away. I was cold turkey for eight years, and it was unheard of. I mean, I was just so happy. I, I was discovering my identity in her. She was giving me a reason to be the man I always wanted to be, to be worthy of trust. Because every man wants to live in integrity. Every man wants to be a hero. Every man wants to be honourable. And honour is a gift that a man gives to himself. And yeah. I was denying myself that gift all of my life. And, and when I met her, it, it was almost like, and I realised this about Christ, Christ died on the cross so a filthy porn addict like me could have a second chance. And I wasn't going to waste that second chance. So so I, um, I living into that, I was cold turkey for, uh, for eight years and our life was just, we lived through some incredible uh, uh, trauma. Uh, we, we've had some incredible trauma in the time we've been together. That's a whole other program, believe me. Um, we've had probably 60 major life-changing events since we've been together. She nearly died before we got married. We were told that she wasn't going to live. She had a, a double, um, uh, she had uh, a bleed in the head, uh, very bad. She nearly died. She was in intensive care for ages. And the doctor told me to steal myself for the worst. And this was just before we were going to get married. We had legal cases. You know, we had surgeries of other kinds. We've had uh, murder in our family. We lost one of our grandchildren to SIDS at three weeks of age. And we've just had these amazing experiences that we've walked through together. And, uh, and so um, ha- being cold turkey for eight years, we went on an amazing holiday. Um, just a camping holiday at Malakuta in northern Victoria, which I used to love to go to. And we, we spent a whole month together and it was just beautiful. And I hated being away from her. I, every minute away from her is a minute that I've flushed down the toilet. I just hate it. And she's the same. But when we had been together for that whole month and I went back to work, my first trip was a four-day trip with the two overnights in Adelaide and I was working hubbing out of Adelaide. And I had some knee pain. I was due to get some knee surgery done. And uh, I'd fallen over in the street in Adelaide going to look for something to eat. And I'd hurt my knee and I was dragging myself back. And I felt incredibly old and over myself. And I walked into the hotel room and flicked open the computer and watched porn for two hours. I just sat there watching porn. And for me, the trigger is loneliness and stress. They're the triggers for, for going to my addiction disconnection again you see I'd been connected to her for so long and then I was stuck in this hotel room and wondering what I was doing here and I stumbled into it and and I felt wretched and I decided that you know I need to make sure that never happens again but I'll just keep it to myself and then I did a seminar on porn addiction and 
uh, a woman rang me. This was about six weeks after the event of me falling again. And a woman rang me and, and confessed to having an addiction herself. And I said, I need to put you on speaker because I don't have discussions with women unless my wife can hear. Is that okay? And she said, yeah. So I put it on speaker and, and uh, my wife was listening. And, um, and the woman said after an hour or so, look, you just, you've just been really amazing. She said, you've really helped me. I, I've got no idea how I, how I can ever thank you. And I said, just, you know, just keep talking when you need to. You know? And when she hung up, Michelle looked at me and she said, see, that's why you're my hero. Can you imagine how I felt? Because I was holding this secret. And she was sitting opposite me and I said to her, and it, it, there's a little voice in this ear saying, don't say anything, you know what will happen. She'll tell you she can never trust you again. Your relationship will be over. The honeymoon will be finished. It's not like you had an affair. Don't say anything. And then the voice in this ear was saying, you know what you've got to do. And I said to her, honey, I'm taking a deep breath because I've got to tell you something that may profoundly affect our relationship and I'm terrified, but I have to tell you. And she just looked at me really calmly and she said, sweetie, what is it? <clears throat> I said to her, <clears throat> uh, six weeks ago when I was in Adelaide on that overnight, you remember after we come back from holidays? And she said, yeah. I said, I stumbled back into porn and I watched porn for a couple of hours. And she just kept looking at me gently and she said, are you okay? And I said, no, I feel lower than a snake's belly in a gutter. I, I'm, I feel terrible. She said, was it anything that I did? And I said, no, sweetheart, I've been struggling with this since I was 12 years old. It wasn't, it, this isn't about you. It's not about you. And then she looked me straight in the eye and she said, what can I do to help you? And that was the exact opposite response to what I was expecting. If she'd given me the human response, it would have driven me deeper into despair and, and driven me further into the addiction and it would have revamped again. But she didn't. She gave me a Jesus response because that's how Jesus responds when I go to him with a confession and I feel wretched. He says, it's okay. Come on, let me dust you off. Just keep your eyes focused on me and we'll be okay. It's all good. I died on the cross so you don't have to worry. I'm going to look after you. And she gave me a Jesus response. And I started writing a book called The Jesus Response because from that I realised that if we criticise and condemn and isolate people because they've, they've fallen back into their addiction, we're actually condemning them to going deeper into it, as I've said earlier. And so uh, I, then, I then had a, a moment of, of great revelation over a period of weeks. There was a, a, a complete and utter daily revisiting of the whole situation in my, in my spirit and, and I managed to get great strength again. And since then I have, I have stumbled a few times as well. And, um, and I have told her, but they have been less and less and less. And they've always been at times when I have um, been in a situation that I just needed to switch my mind off and I dated my addiction of choice. But um, now I'm totally free of it and it's, it's a beautiful place to be. And it, ta it takes a while. And that's why I say to a lot of, a lot of uh, addicts that it's sometimes one step forward and two steps back. But it's only ever over when you stop taking steps. You have to keep walking. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, we run 12-step recovery programs. A lot of people fall off the wagon about step six or seven. And uh, they, they say, oh, what's the point? I may as well give up. And I always say to them, why? And they say, well, I've got to go back and start all over again. I said, no, nah, there's a fail-safe mechanism on the recovery train. When you fall off it, it stops. And Jesus has got his hand out at the, on, the, on the platform of the carriage to lift you back up again and start the journey from there. The main thing is that 
you know, we're, we're given we're given pain, physical pain, to tell us that we're damaging our body. So if I keep hitting my hand with a hammer and I don't have pain, I could pulverise my hand and be, you know, drastically injured. So pain is a great thing. Pain tells us that we need to see a doctor. Pain tells us that we've got our hand on a, on a hot stone and we shouldn't. And shame and guilt are mechanisms to tell us that we're damaging our soul and our exactly. character. Exactly. So we, if we lived in a world without pain and shame and guilt, it, it would be a mess. So I'm grateful to God for, for those things. So at times when I felt like I'm slipping, I've got a mentor that I contact um, and I, I say to him, you know, I feel really bad. I feel like I'm really distant from God. He says, do you feel bad? I said, I feel really bad. He said, thank God for that. He said, if you weren't worried about it, I'd be concerned. So it, that, that fear of disconnection from my higher power wants me to go back to it. And when right. I do that, it's great. Yeah. Well, darling, you and I have the same message, but we, we deliver it in very different vernacular, in very different, with very different words. <laughs> Yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the same message, absolutely the same message. Yeah, emotion, a negative emotion is um, is a message to you that you are flowing your energy, this is my vernacular, in a way that is, it's not damaging your soul, but it is actually damaging your body. If you keep pinching off the flow of pure positive energy or the flow of love, you do. Your body doesn't uh, work effectively. This is what I was chatting with my girlfriend with last night when I was having a chat about how sickness happens she said you know it doesn't happen from a virus that is like airborne and making everybody sick in the whole world it happens from you damaging your own immune system so that it gets overloaded and it can't cope with the environment and we damage our immune system by hating ourselves and feeling shame and feeling guilt and hating other people and resentment and unforgiveness we just pinch off the flow of um you could call it jesus you could call it god you could call it energy doesn't matter what you call it source and uh, and then your body doesn't work effectively so yeah all pain is a message it's all communication it is and and you know uh, michelle says this a lot to clients and and uh, and groups that she addresses that anything psychological that's not dealt with will become a physiological manifestation in absolutely. your health absolutely absolutely and, and for me it's like you know i talk about damaging my soul and my character it's like me emptying a septic tank into a clean house when I do something that, that, that makes me feel guilty or shameful. I'm forcing my soul and my character to live in, in garbage and, um, and, and I'm doing that to myself and I need to stop doing that. I need to cleanse myself of that so that who I am intrinsically can live in a healthy environment. Yeah. And that's why we say to people, you know, if you want Jesus in your life, um, you have to clean out every room in your house that you're inviting him into. You can't just give him the lounge room and have all the other rooms locked off and dirty. You have to own your dirt, you know. You have to clean it out. And if you clean it out of every every little cupboard in your house and you, you give him a clean house to dwell in, you're, you're going to be healthy and you're going to be spiritually well. And My vernacular again, sorry. But um, um, to me, it's just it's a no-brainer. It's just so simple. And yeah. I you know, I, w I went down many roads uh, before I, I found my faith. Uh, I went down the New Age path. I looked at Buddhism and I was desperately seeking meaning. And I got to a stage where I realised that I was filling the God-shaped hole in my chest with pornography, with food and with, you know, spending money I didn't have and television and movies and all those things. And it wasn't until I filled it with God that I started to get better. It's not, not until I decided that, that I am the product of a higher power that is in complete control. And the sooner I surrender to that, the better off I'll be. 
And that higher power doesn't mind if you call it Buddhism or New Age or Christianity or Muslim or, you know, it doesn't actually care what flavor you give it as long as you, as long as you acknowledge that you are an extension of that pure positive energy. And it doesn't have, matter what flavor it is. You have to get out of self. Mm. You know, the, our, our big problem in our society today is we're so self-focused the mobile telephone, the smartphone, which gives us these great photo opportunities, you know. Um, if you're having smashed abo on toast by the Brisbane River with a nice cup of cappuccino, then your life must be perfect. And you've got 10,000 followers, then your life must be perfect. But where are all your friends when your house burned down? You know, we're just so disconnected because of self. Uh, we, we use social media to portray us, our lives as amazing when they're garbage. Right, we're, yeah. Lives are filled with meaningless garbage and our landfills are filled with stuff that supports the meaningless garbage that goes out of fashion and we throw it away. I mean, our whole world is is being destroyed by our sense of our own self and not by, and by and, the power. And interestingly enough, I think that what's happening in our world is actually the remedy to that and not, and not the problem. And I know that sounds hard to find, but you were talking about, you know, you don't just give Jesus the lounge room. <laughs> if you invite the light in, you got to clean all the rooms so that the light can. And I really believe that the light is being turned up on planet earth at the moment. And as it is being turned up, it's revealing all the dirt and the distortion and the control. And what's happening with the control dramas is it's not creating the fear. It's exposing the fear. It's exposing the fear that lives within you. And you're someone that has dealt with fear I mean, you're fearless enough to talk about your porn addiction openly and in public. You know, there's no fear there. There's no fear of ridicule or judgment. And I think that's the biggest fear that humans have is this fear of being judged and ridiculed and ostracized and, and seen as an outsider. It's a huge fear that humans have. You don't seem to have it, Graham. Yeah. Well, you know, I, there's one verse in the Bible, Galatians 1.10, and it says, I speak to please God, not man, because if I speak to please man, how can I please God? My whole existence is about striving to be the best man I can be for my wife, but for God first. I put God first, she and the family are second, and my country is third. And that's the order that I place things in. And that, for me, that means that I make decisions every day that I know will please God. Even Jordan Peterson, who is much sought after by men, especially uh, millennial men, uh, as, a, as a mentor to guide them back into some kind of structure, even he says he never admits that he believes in God, but he said he lives like there is a God. Um, and, and to me, that's what this is about. It's about uh, living, living for God. Because if we, if we live in the essence of what our, what our picture of God is, then everyone benefits. Everybody benefits. You know, our wives benefit, our kids benefit, our communities benefit, our country benefits. It's only when we live in our, in our image of ourself which is inherently flawed in so many ways, and it gets it gets distorted more and more with media and social media and mainstream media. It gets so distorted, um, you know. You you can't you can't be a real man unless you've got Calvin Klein knickers on. You know what I mean? You can't be a real man unless you smoke a cigar like Shane Warne um, and and you know womanize and all that. Our definition of hero in this country is distorted manhood in such a way, and that's a whole other program too. Let me ask you. With the forgiveness, did you ever have an opportunity to speak to your ex-wife and do the forgiveness there? No, she um, um, she decided when I left that I was dead to her um, 
I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe the kids are discouraged from mentioning my name. I did write her a letter um, about a year or 18 months after, and I said to her, I admitted to everything that I'd done that I knew she knew about anyway. And I apologised profusely to her for dragging her into my sexual addiction. And, <clears throat> and uh, it was never something I intended to do and I never meant to hurt her. And I accepted full responsibility for every action, every action that I didn't say, look, I, 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 I'm sorry for my part in this. I didn't, you know, we both had an equal role to play in the destruction of our marriage. We both weren't meeting each other's emotional needs because we didn't know how to. Mm. You know, we lived in we lived in marriages. We grew up as kids in marriages that were not healthy. You know, her her parents and mum ruled the roost, and dad was lived in mediocrity in his shed, and and my parents were just broken with sexual dysfunction and all kinds of things. And we were we we are inherently two really nice people, but we should so have been. She didn't uh, accept your um, olive leaf. She never she never responded to it, but. One of my kids told me that she cried for a couple of days when she read it, and then she got on with her life. And okay. um, I, you know, every every uh, year on her birthday, I I quietly wish her a happy birthday, and I quietly hope that she's okay. And she's the mother of two beautiful uh, women. Um, yeah, it it saddens me that I, I I I didn't have an opportunity to sort myself out before I made the decision to be with her, and. Um, it's, uh, you know, broken, brokenness, brokenness is a terrible thing. We have to deal with it the best way we can. And we have to accept sure. responsibility for our part. Have to accept. You know, my second husband, when I first met him, I made him do that. I made him ring his wife and take full responsibility for their dysfunctional marriage and, um, and apologize. And she did the same. She didn't, she, she wanted to stay in anger and um, it's a choice, you know, it's a choice. She didn't well, want to I, I, accept any, but you know, I've got a million questions. There's, there's a question I have about flying. Did you ever see anything strange when you're up in the air, in the yeah, sky? I, I, I want to hear. I want to hear about that, Graham. I'll tell you the most profound one. I was I was doing a, a flight that was going to get into Wellington in New Zealand from Melbourne uh, very late at night, and we were flying over the Tasman at about thirty eight thousand feet, I think we were. And there was, as we approached uh, New Zealand, there was a great sheet of thick white cloud right across the whole country land of the long white cloud and there was uh, a moon shining on the top of it it was like this beautiful sea of ice that we were gliding across and we were making preparation for our landing working out briefing each other on how we were going to make the approach and uh, what we were going to do and programming the flight management computer to do all that and all of a sudden the entire cockpit lit up bright blue um, it was blinding and we looked out the window and there was this massive ball of white light slowly descending, slowly descending way ahead of us. And it hit the cloud and it went under the cloud and all the cloud went bright blue from underneath from this light. And we looked at each other and we said, what was that? And I got on the radio. You're always reluctant to report these things. You see a few things like that. And I got on the radio and I called Auckland Centre and I said to them, have you got any uh, unidentified traffic in our area and they said no nothing on radar I said why and I said well we've just seen a massive blue light uh, descend in front of us through the cloud and uh, we've got no idea what that was and then as we got closer to where it went through the cloud there was a big hole in the cloud a big hole and we descended through that and the guy in, in Auckland Centre said you guys haven't been smoking the wacky backy have you 
and we laughed. And then Air New Zealand, who were 100 miles behind us, called up and they said, well, if they have, so have we, because we just saw it too. And nothing was said. No, nothing was said about it and um, it didn't make the media. We didn't lodge a report. We just left it at that. Uh, that's the most profound one. I've, I've had a... Did it make you want to look into what you were looking at, like to investigate? To, did, did it make uh, you ask more questions? It didn't. Interesting. A UFO is an unidentified flying object um it could be it could i I, i've always had a a kind of a fascination but i haven't delved into it Mm -hmm. i think there are a lot of things that are unexplained out there that um and and uh another time i had a we had a a blinking red light alongside our cockpit on the way to melbourne or out out on our right hand wing and uh we thought that looks weird Uh, and we called up air traffic control and said is there another aircraft really close to us because we're, have you got anything on radar? And I said, no, you're the only guys up there. It was really late at night. And I said, why? And I said, well, we've got a red rotating beacon, flashing light, sitting just to beam us, keeping up with us. And we turned all the lights down in the cockpit so there were no reflections on the glass. And we were looking like this through the glass. And we could see this bright bumper, bumper, bumper. And, and when the air traffic controller came back and said, no, definitely nothing there, it went vertical, straight up. Wow. Mm-hmm. Just like that. So anyway, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think you do know, but anyway, it's something else well, to think I, about. Yeah, I, don't, I don't lose a lot of sleep over it, let me put it that way. I mean, somebody told me that Neil Armstrong never walked on the moon. It would break my heart if that never happened because um, what young boy doesn't dream that he could have been in Neil Armstrong's shoes? I mean, some, some things are just be- best left unsaid. I firmly believe in my heart that Neil Armstrong worked, walked on the moon and I firmly believe in my heart that the world is round and not flat. I get asked so many times. I said, well, I know it's round because I kept skipping off it all the time and I tried to land. So, no, I mean, there there are some things that we need to just ask ourselves, why are we even considering such notions? In a world that's destroying itself, in a world that's consuming itself alive, uh, these sorts of things are really uh, irrelevant to the big scheme of things. What we're dealing with now is a darkness that's trying to overtake this the people of this planet and there are lots of ways we can fight that by living in strength and, and just learning to say that simple two-letter word, no. I mean, if the whole planet said no, if everybody on the planet looked after the person on his right, we wouldn't be having these conversations. What would be the point? Yeah. Well, you know, looking into what you call the darkness on our planet is something that most people don't want to look at either. When I was having this conversation with my girlfriend last night, she kept saying, but why? But why would people do that? What's the agenda? I can't believe that that's true. It's like you just can't go there. Some people just can't live outside of their very small idea of what the world is. And yet in the morning I had a, uh, I have an online group where I teach. We had a guest teacher who was brought up in a satanic cult and she was tortured all her childhood life and to be split into 350 Uh, different personalities and then she spent 30 years healing herself but you know people don't want to believe that that's actually a truth either that that exists and yet here's this woman that's had that direct um, experience and her message is very much the same as your message it's all about connecting to the divine intelligence or god or jesus or whatever you want to call it that healed her and continues to heal her even though she has been through some of the most unbelievable things and she doesn't go into too much graphic detail because it just knock your socks off if you'd heard it so there are controlling forces in our world that are doing their darndest 
to, okay, the next question, and this is probably something that I won't put up on the YouTube platform, about your decision to stand down as a Qantas pilot. What did you, why did you make that decision? What made you look at a medical procedure in a different way and not trust? A very good question. And uh, the truth is that I had, like most Australians, just getting on with life and uh, seeing this. I used to say to my wife when when we saw what was going on in Wuhan back in early 2020, planet's amazing. They'll come up with a vaccine. They'll come up with a vaccine and we'll be okay. And then they came up with one and I thought, wow, that's quick. And then it got approved real quick. And I thought, well, that's probably because they think if there's any chance of people dying from the vaccine, it'll be less than those will die of the virus. So they're probably taking a risk. And then I thought, uh, is that really good? Anyhow, um, uh, then I got a, a message from the nursing home where my mum is. And they said to me, um, uh, your medical power of attorney, mum's um, going to need to be vaccinated for the, uh, for the, uh, the virus. And I said, I don't want to get AstraZeneca. And they said, no, we can give her Pfizer. I said, okay, give her Pfizer. And I just thought, great, mum's okay. You know, I feel I can sleep now. She's going to be okay. And then the, the government kept changing the narrative about AstraZeneca, you know, and they kept bringing shrinking in the dates between two doses. And then, you know, you've got one health minister saying everybody should get AstraZeneca and the Queensland chief medical officer says, no way is she going to allow kids to get it or anyone under 30 to get it or 18 or whatever. And the narrative kept shifting and I'm thinking, oh, you know, as a pilot, everything everything we do is calculated and we not we like to know every nth detail before we make a command decision. When, because most of the time, the decisions we make in flight aren't rushed. It's only in an extreme emergency that you have to act on your instinct and training. And so everything is about analysing and risk risk management and assessment. And that's our modus operandi. So I decided, no way am I, am I having AstraZeneca. So I sent a text message to my manager and I said, uh, if you're going to you know, get everyone to be vaccinated, I'm not, I'm not getting AstraZeneca and I'm over 60, so I don't qualify for Pfizer. And he said, well because you're an essential worker, we can get you Pfizer. And I said to him, okay, well, when you've got a clinic at the airport, uh, I'll get jabbed on the way home from a duty and then I'll come home and have a couple of days off and recover and come back to work. He said, right, I'll let you know. The next day I thought, oh, I wonder when they're going to contact me about my appointment. And I thought, I better have a, I suppose I better do a little bit of due diligence and have a look. And where am I going to start? Well, I started with, I don't want to go down the Google rabbit hole, you know, I'm going to end up in all these weird conspiracy theories. This is my thinking back then. Uh, I'm not going in, into tin hat territory. I'll just go to mainstream media. Who do I trust in the mainstream media? Well, most Australians would say the ABC. So I went to ABC iView and I thought, where am I going to get information here? And I look at Four Corners because I really enjoyed that program. And there were two episodes of Four Corners dealing with the vaccine mandate, uh, sorry, the vaccine rollout. It was called Vaccinating Australia. And so I'll start with ABC. I'll get the good gen there. And the, the reporter goes to an independent senator in Canberra who had requested the vaccine rollout plan from Greg Hunt through Freedom of Information. And he had it in his hand and it had a beautiful covering letter with the, with the crest of Australia on it and the right honourable Greg Hunt and all that. And 40 pages of, of blank, nothing. It was all redacted. And he showed it to the reporter and the reporter said, why isn't there any information on this? He said, well, you've got to think, what are they hiding? And I thought, yeah, that's a good question. Now, this is mainstream. So then the reporter takes that document to Professor Brendan Murphy, 
who's, you know, the grandfather of health in Australia. Everyone looks at him and thinks he's a wonderful man, and I'm sure he is. Um, he's like a grandfather that's looking after your health, and you think, great. And he hands the document to Professor Murphy, and Professor Murphy says, yeah, and he's flicking through the blank pages. He said, yeah. He says, why is all this information redacted? And Murphy leans back with a beautiful, loving smile on his face, and he says, you have to remember that there are very sensitive issues around the agreements we have with our suppliers, and they're very strict and sensitive about what we can say. So, unfortunately, we can't reveal anything. Uh, and I thought, what? You're a senior public servant. You're being paid out of our wages to tell us what we need to give informed consent, and you can't tell us what we need, and you're supporting the corporation, not the people. I said, I smell a rat. And so I started to think, there's something going on here. There's a rat in the cheese factory. You can smell it. So then I thought, all right, what do I do now? Um, I need to ask some questions. So I, I wrote a list of basic fundamental questions uh, to get medical opinion on. And every time I tried to get those questions answered, like long-term side effects, short-term side effects, if I take it, will I get a blood clot in flight? If I take it, will it destroy my ability to hold a pilot's licence because I can't pass some medical every year, every six months? Nobody can answer those questions. And then Prime Minister says, you have a right to give informed consent. We're not mandating vaccines in this country. Um, and you have a right to make an informed decision. But how can I make an informed decision when none of my questions can be answered? So then I thought, all right, okay, well, I, maybe I need to wait until some of these questions can be answered. So what am I going to do? I need to probably take some time off work. Everyone was being stood down anyway, and I thought, I've got no mortgage, so somebody else needs to pay their mortgage. So I'll step down so somebody else can work. And I'll, because we live on a little isolated rural property, um, Michelle and I will be safe. We're just going to limit our movements and we're going to do the right things and just treat this thing with caution and see what happens. And hopefully in three, four, five months, we'll have answers to the questions I want. So then I started looking at cures. Okay, if I'm not going to get this thing now and I'm going to get it later, what if we catch COVID? What sort of processes do I need to consider? So I Googled that, cure for COVID. The first person that came up was Dr. Peter McCullough. And his protocols are saving thousands of lives and they're so cheap and they're so, they were readily available. They include the wonder drugs that they talk about and they include vitamins and other supplements and antibiotics and aspirin to stop blood clotting. And we got this regime right in front of our eyes and we thought, okay, so if we do get it, we've got a way of curing it as long as we get to it early. And then I thought, why isn't the government telling people you can get it early, you can cure it early? And then I thought, and then I found out of people in Australia who had contracted COVID. And a friend of mine had a family of three in, in Sydney who contracted COVID. And I, he was full of panic, you know, they're all going to die and all this sort of stuff. And I said, no, they're probably not going to die. I said, what happened? He said, oh, New South Wales Health come around and put a stick up their nose. And they said, one of, they only tested one and, and she, she had COVID. And now they're all going to die. And I said to him, did they live give them any idea what was going to happen uh, they said and we've heard from nurses and doctors that they're saying to people at home sick don't come to the hospital unless your lips are blue or you're coughing blood too late then i said so they were told to stay home and i said to him have they given them any medications to try and ease the symptoms or fight it nothing not a thing but i said hang on there's all these medications that are working 
And he said to me, he virtually after a while came back to me and said, no, you can't trust ivermectin, for example, because it kills people. It's killing people. The most trusted drug in the world, been around for nearly 60 years, won Nobel Peace Prize, and everyone's convinced it's killing people. And then I thought to myself, no, nah, there's something really sus here, really, really sus. And then when you start delving from that point, you see it clearly. They're not even trying to hide the darkness behind their move. People say to me, you're not trusting the science. And I say, but the science is what made the virus. The virus was made in a lab. The scientists made the virus. And I'm pretty sure they made the virus fairly benign so that it could be utilised with a fear campaign in the media to get everyone vaccinated. So if they want everyone vaccinated around the world and they've invented a virus to do it, why have they done that? What's so important about everyone being vaccinated? And you just can't go anywhere else once you realise that. Right. I mean... And I'm, I'm a conspiracy realist now. I don't have to delve into dark rabbit holes of conspiracy now to find the truth. It's there in plain sight. They're not even trying to hide it anymore. Yeah, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's so obvious. And and I look, I, I've got friends and family who have taken the, the jab and I love them and I want to see them and hug them. And I pray that all of my fears aren't realised in their lives. And I know a lot of people have had it and they're not having any effects. And I'm so glad because if my fears are to be realised, a lot of people near and dear to me will probably have to die. And I don't want that. I want to be wrong. Well, my, my friend was asking me last night because we had this intense conversation around it. What are your guides saying, Karen? What are your guides or Jesus or whatever you want to call them? And I said that not all the, not all the vaccinations are, are loaded up with um, the components that are not conducive to life, not all of them are. And she said, well, why wouldn't they? And, uh, and it would be a money thing. Could you imagine making like there's what, about 8 billion people and then you're giving a double dose and then you're giving a booster dose and that. I mean, it's a lot of money to, you know, create vaccinations for that many people. So they're not all loaded up with what is not conducive to life, but a lot of them are. So not everyone that takes them will, will suffer but a lot of people will. And we're seeing well, that evidence come out in incredibly. You know, a, a, a young colleague of mine in Perth uh, who still was actively flying died on the weekend from a blood clot in the middle of his brain. Wow. He's very fit. He was, was, he, was he flying at the time or was he at uh, home? He was, he was on a day off riding a bike. Um, I don't know the whole story. Um, I'm not saying he was vaccinated or not vaccinated, but... If you were to see the thousands of messages that come across my screen every day mm-hmm. and the, the, uh, the absolutely trustworthy testimony of people who have suffered injury, mm-hmm. who have suffered loss, irrefutably from the vaccine, mm-hmm. and none of it gets reported. And a lot of the nurses are telling me it's not getting reported, A, because they're told to play it down, and B, the, the, the process of reporting it is so time-consuming and so convoluted, they just haven't got time. You know, there more and more staff are leaving hospitals because of these ridiculous mandates. So the, the staff that are there are stretched to the limit, not because of COVID. I had one friend say to me, you know, if, if you do any marches or rallies or anything, can you try not to do them? Because these are super spreader events. And I've got lots of friends who are nurses and they're crying every night because of all the people that are dying. And I said to him, how many hospitals are there in Sydney? Uh, I, I don't know. I said, well, let's say there's 20 hospitals in Sydney. Um, 
How many people die each day? Between 10 and 12, roughly. So half the hospitals are not having any deaths and some of the others are, and some of those deaths are in palliative care wards, most of them are, or nursing homes. Um, people die in hospitals. Why are the nurses really upset about all these deaths when there's only like a dozen scattered between 20 or 30 hospitals? Oh, well, it's, it's not that. It's that there's 46 people on, on, on respirators. Uh, okay, well, people are on, you know, how many people... The Premier of New South Wales said between six and 800 people die every year of influenza in New South Wales alone. We've had like 1,200 or 1,300 deaths or something throughout the whole pandemic Australia-wide, and none, none are being recorded as, as being of influenza. Uh, I saw a Facebook post yesterday from a family who uh, I think one of the health departments claimed had a daughter who was the youngest uh, person to die of COVID. And they were incensed. They put out a post on Facebook, I believe, that said that their daughter died of a brain tumor and it had nothing to do with COVID. Yeah. And they didn't like her being used as a statistic. Yeah. So, there's, I mean... There's a lot going on, Graham. So, so you started to wake up to a narrative that you couldn't have imagined was happening. How did you feel about that? Like, Well, I felt that um, a lot of people were feeling the same way as I did. When I made the video, and that's when it all came out, I thought, you know, I was told by lawyers to lay low. You've done what you've done now. A company's not going to be happy. You may get fired, but we'll get whistleblower protection for you. And there may be a settlement in court or something like that. Uh, but you've got to not say anything. And I said, how long will that process take? And they said, maybe 18 months or more. But you mustn't say anything. And then I kept getting thousands of messages of people telling me these stories, uh, real life stories. A doctor who told me that because he couldn't give informed consent for himself, he couldn't give it to his patients. And he was a medical specialist. And APRA had shut him down and taken his license off him. And he asked me to pray for his patients because there was no one to replace him. Uh, it was heartbreaking to read that message. Um, you know, reading uh, hundreds and hundreds of messages from nurses and doctors and paramedics from the front line who were yesterday's heroes, but because they can't go along with the mandate, they're today's garbage. And, and I'm seeing all these messages and people who have lost loved ones uh, from being vaccinated. Uh, you know, my cousin's um, grandson, 21-year-old, pericarditis two days after his second vaccine, a fit-strapping man who's in real issues now. It's really mm. struggling. And, and none of this is being recorded and none of it's being talked about. So I, I started to realise that there's a trench on the battlefield on one side and one on the other side, and one's totally pro-vax, the other one's totally anti-vax. Doesn't matter what vaccine you put out there, they're not going to take it. And in the middle is a vast, a heavily populated no man's land. And that's where I am. And that's where millions of Australians are. And I realised that in my rant, that I was actually now in a position to speak for those millions of Aussies in between those two trenches who want answers, who can't give informed consent. And many of those are trained professionals in health. They're frontline responders, first responders who have trained and been analytical. I mean, every police officer is trained that the role of the first role of any police officer is to investigate whatever he's been asked to do. And so these are guys who've been asked to investigate. Pilots and cabin crew are the same. Investigate. Work out where the problem is. Is there a potential problem? Always think of the worst thing that can happen and don't let it. Mm -hmm. That's what we're designed to, to train to do. Nurses who are trained the same way, doctors who are trained the same way. This no man's land is filled with people who can't give informed consent because they're not yet convinced. And nothing that they do to force people to cave in 
is convincing them. It's only making it worse. The mainstream media and the health departments are overcooking the goose for me. It's like I've walked past a timeshare sales office and they're out there offering me free holidays and, yeah. and uh, free meals and all this sort of stuff. It's like there's got to be a catch. If I've got to be bullied. I, I know this, this is the logic of it, Graham. This is, what, this is what drives me nuts. Like I was saying to my girlfriend last night, if something was that good for you, why do you need to force people to do it? Like, why do you need to threaten their livelihood? Why do you need to threaten them and ostracize them and ridicule them and judge them? And, you know, like, if something is that good for you, that none of that is necessary because it would be common sense for people to do it. And yet people aren't doing it. So, yeah, there's a. If, if you've got to be bribed, bullied, bribed, right. or threatened to put something in your body, you can automatically assume that's not in your best interest. Interest. That's, you know, that's an automatic assumption that should ring alarm bells for everybody. Yeah. But it isn't because people have been, people have been locked down into oblivion with this kind of thinking. Now, the thing that I'm really desperately trying to uh, get come to, t- come to terms with is a number of people messaging me now, especially from Victoria, who are telling me they want to end their life. Right. And these aren't one or two. I'm talking about scores, if not hundreds, because I don't. I only get to see a couple of messages a day. There's too many, and it would do my head in to go through all of them. And okay. I'm really concerned. What do you believe? I know what I believe, but what do you believe the solution is? The solution is to withdraw the fear, stop the propaganda, get people to realise that um, that the fear is the real epidemic, the right. pandemic. And there, is, there are many variants to the fear pandemic. The first one is the suicide variant. Right. The second one is the domestic violence variant. The third one is the uh, uh, soaring addictions variant. The fourth one is um, community violence and, uh, and uh, also the hate the police variant, you know, protect and serve. That's gone out the window, especially in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're the variants. Now, there's one, one inoculant that fixes all of that, and it's called hope. Or love. Yeah, same thing, because where there's love, there's hope. Where there's life, there's hope. And if people only realise that they are doing the most crazy things, I mean, if we would only fight for our freedom like we fought for toilet paper, <laughs> you know, really, I mean, we are, we are. <laughs> That's the best thing you've said. We, yeah, we are, we are living in a world. I mean, America is, has been a psychological basket case, case for years. And why? They're all armed. Why? Because their mainstream media news compete to come out with the most outrageous fear-based stories they can. I know. Because fear breeds content and breeds revenue dollars from advertising. So the most outrageous mm-hmm. media gets the most attention. And the talking heads on those media, the more outrageous they can make it. I mean, if you lived your life by... The morning, the morning television programs in in Australia, uh, you'd be a bar- basket case. Yeah, um, you'd, want, you'd want to kill yourself. You know that was the reason I went on media. So I work as a healer and a teacher and a spiritual channel, but I saw the way that media hypnotizes people to believing the fear porn, right? And in my small way, twelve years ago, I started on community radio. We had no listeners moved to another bigger community radio station and then started podcasting. I wanted to pump out stories of uh, 
you know, how we overcome, how we can be deliberate in creating our reality, how we don't need to fear. It's empowering messages because, yeah, the media has a lot to answer for. And the media I have watched. So that's like 12 years ago. I've woken up to the power of the media. And in the last two years, oh, wow, I have never seen, I, I just didn't understand how, how effective that power of the media could be. It has been so effective in hypnotizing people, loving people who now want to call you a leper because you're making an informed choice not to do something that could be harmful. And yet these people are hypnotized into thinking that you're the problem. It's just like, wow, the power of media. Yeah, they've done a really good job. You know, uh, you've got to remember, I realised many years ago that news was no longer news. It was just opinion, a distorted mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. And if you if you consider the daily bulletins that you hear minute by minute now, it used to be you saw the 6 o'clock news and you heard the ABC news at 7 in the morning when you woke up. Now you've got minute by minute news. How many times did you need to see the World Trade Centre collapse? <laughs> right, every year it's revisited. Now, all news is is some editor sitting in an office somewhere deciding what he wants you to be worried about for the next 24 hours because yeah. your fear and concern breeds income, revenue. And, and then the other side, the double barrel, the second barrel of media is what we now term reality television. So you have programs like renovation programs like The Block or um, you have cooking programs like, you know, My Kitchen Rules or whatever. They started out as, you know, how to cook and how to renovate. And now it's about pitting strange couples against one another and everybody laughing. Fighting. It's like going to the Colosseum in Rome in, the, in ancient times and watching gladiators murder each other. Right. Our whole society is geared up to pit people against each other right. and to put unbelievable psychological pressure on them. I mean, married at first sight? Who does that? <laughs> Who even watches that stuff? You know, the bachelor. I, I've the bachelor. Got a, I had my niece living with me for a couple of years a few years ago and she was young. And we watched it together and we had a great giggle. It was funny. We do, I haven't watched it since she moved out, but it was, it was a giggle. I have to say it was a giggle. But it was all about, it was, it was like you put two people, damaged people together and that amplifies their, you know, distortion within them themselves and soon love turns into pure hatred. <laughs> you know, some people laugh at it and a lot of people take it seriously. Yeah. You know, there's even a program called Gogglebox, which is about, people who are addicted a reality tv show about people who are addicted to reality tv shows i mean how 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 far does this stuff go before people say hang on we're part of a big social experiment and you get three minutes of the program and five minutes of the ads in the middle and the ads are repeated the ones who pay the most money get the the opening ad and the last ad so just to cement the message in and then you've got a house with alexa and and siri and all of that listening to everything you're saying you know people have got alexa beside the bed lord knows what it's recording while they're while they're being husband and wife and and you know i've, I've had conversations with michelle and siri will be on the in the kitchen uh, on my phone on the charger and it'll speak up and get into the conversation and i didn't even know it was on i mean come on we've got to wake up we've just got to wake up we've got to stop communicating with our thumbs and start connecting physically with each other and communicating with our with our with our ears and our mouth like we used to Sorry about that. You're hearing those dings in the background? Yes, hearing all the dings. Are they uh, messages coming in from Facebook? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I typed it to turn that off. <laughs> anyway. I thought I had. I thought I had. <laughs> uh, 
Ignore the messages. Yeah. yeah, so the solution. So the solution is not to fight the narrative, but to get into your heart and find the brilliance of the love within you. And then, you know, here's the thing. When you do, like I look at people complaining about censorship. I've been censored. And as, as millions of people are complaining about losing, because there was one guy I was watching yesterday that lost 25 million followers on Twitter. Bang, a journalist, just Twitter just took him off. 200 million impressions he had on Twitter. But as, as he's sitting around complaining about uh, losing followers, there are other people out there creating new platforms. So this is the choice. We can sit around and complain about what's happening or we can get to work in creating a new world that we want to live in. Yeah. Right. Stop, stop pushing against the old and just create the world you want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm at the stage now where my fears about this medical procedure uh, I think well-founded and I, the people in my life I care about, um, I'm really hoping they don't get it. But the greatest, the greatest disaster we face as a nation, nation and as a people is apartheid and segregation. And we are within millimetres of doing what the Germans did in the 1930s. They created fear around the Jews and, you know, 80% um, of the population of Germany uh, saw the Jews being rounded up and sent away and never gave them a second thought. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the war ended and they were shown the atrocities that they, they begged for forgiveness and fell to the ground crying. We're, we're capable of that. The German people have always been a highly educated, um, uh, resourceful people who, with a great intellect, enabled the worst crimes to humanity before this uh, to take place. And... Um, we're capable of that in this country, and we're kidding ourselves if we um, if we don't recognise that. Um, and I, my my main purpose from here on in is to revitalise the Australian spirit. I mean, the fair dinkum Aussie spirit, uh, not the she'll be right, mate. That's not educated. That doesn't matter what happens. We need to be concerned about each other. Um, I would be, I believe that we're heading for a pseudo leper colony in this country that will be occupied by millions of Australians because if they only, even if they get to 90%, that means two and a half million Australians won't be vaccinated. And what do you, what I've been asking the Prime Minister, you know, what are you going to do with these people and for how long? Um, they're going to need uh, people in their ranks who love and care about them, who speak for them as best they can. It's going to be harder now because the Victorian Parliament has mandated that uh, all parliamentarians get the jab. So anyone who doesn't, who represents those who don't, won't be allowed to speak in parliament. You know you know what, Graeme, I hate to interrupt you, but I don't think it'll get that far. And you know why? Just like you, who was perfectly accepting and wanted to go along with the mainstream narrative, woke up. So are millions and millions and millions and millions of people across the world doing the same thing. So yeah. at this point, we are not the majority, but we are definitely not only 10% or 20%. Oh, yeah, know. that's right. And the, we, the people who speak to me at the rally, for example, say a lot of them have been double vaccinated. They're not here about the mandates. They're here about the freedoms that we're losing. Because right. we're giving away freedoms that we've enjoyed in our life that our kids will never see, and we can't be doing that. Right. You know, we can't be having narratives like this. And when I talk about a leper colony, it's my my way of thinking of the worst thing that could happen and don't let it. Um, I would I would be making this stand I'm making now regardless of my vaccination status. Yeah, well, I wouldn't worry about leper colonies. I wouldn't even put your energy, I wouldn't even flow your energy, your imagination in that direction. I've been, I've been flowing my energy and my imagination in the direction of community coming together to live 
to live, you know, unplugged from the matrix. So we don't, we're not addicted to shopping anymore and, and, you know, having a smashed avocado, capo mochaccino at the local cafe. We're more into community and getting together and maybe we're growing our own food and we're creating our own school systems and we're creating our own education. You know, there's, there's a new world available to us <laughs> if we want to take it rather than sort of flowing your energy in, in the direction of um, the horrors that can happen. I actually see, a, uh, yeah, a new world, a new world unfolding which is, yeah, unplugging from the matrix of the world that we've lived in that's kept us addicted to consumerism and money and, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Well, I, I happen to think there's a bunch of uh, very influential rich people who also have the same idea of creating a new world and um, uh, they're going to have a lot of power and they'll only have that power if, if we give it to them because we're asleep. And so we have, we have to, I believe, focus on the fact that uh, there is potential darkness and we need to we need to confront it by making ourselves aware and um, and so for me it's uh, it's about taking taking up the fight now while we have a chance while we still have a democratic right to to meet and gather even though some police forces won't allow that uh, I'm incredibly encouraged by the number of police who are now speaking up I've been in contact with hundreds of them. I Zoom with many of them. And I know that that number is going to increase rapidly. 45% uh, of the Queensland force are saying no. 45? Yep. And, wow. and, and health as well. And the police commissioner in Queensland is just shrugging his shoulders and saying we'll cover the shortfall with overtime. Well, lots of luck with that. Um, and in Victoria, there are hundreds of police now who are just saying, you know what, I think we've had enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we're going to see amazing things happen in Victoria uh, in, in the coming days and weeks uh, with the police there. So these things, darkness only flourishes when men of goodwill do nothing. And so we, while it's wonderful to think about, we've got, you know, there's this great hope and we're all going to, we're living, going to live into this light. You can't do that unless you accept the darkness exists and you have to find a way to shed light on it because yeah. Absolutely. All, all, all darkness is is the absence of light. Yeah, exactly. So dark, my darkness is the absence of love, and the presence of fear. Uh, mm. Yeah, you know, people do things that are heinous because they fear they can't get what they want. I yeah. mean, I don't know what the people want. There's a lot of ideas out there about what they want. They want, you know, control, and they want to turn people into robots. There's a lot of ideas about what it is that they want. But yeah, why do you need to control people? Uh, the, that's the absence of love. When you know I mean, that your source, when that yeah. your source of power is the source of love, then you don't need to control other people. Nobody ever asked me if I wanted five G. No one ever asked me if I wanted um, I wanted uh, facial recognition. No one ever asked me if I wanted the technology that controls every aspect of my movements. Nobody ever asked you, did they? Did, did, the, uh, did the government ask you? Have the government asked you about all the bills that they're passing in the middle of the night these days in the various states and federal arenas? Uh, we're not being asked. We're finding about, out about them after they've been passed. And um, mm. so uh, we're living in a world that is, is existing because we're apathetic. We've become addicted to our own convenience. Mm -hmm. uh, the bugs seem to be getting stronger, but I think our convenience is depleting our immune system and now it's our immune system getting weaker, not our bugs getting stronger. 
Mm-hmm. And we have to address those things in our life. Like instead of McDonald's or fast food on every corner, there should be a greengrocer. Mm-hmm. If you're serious about health, you'll ban fast food. If you're serious about health, you'll ban alcohol. If you're serious about health, you'll ban tobacco. This is not about health. If you're serious about uh, saving lives, you'll have a 25-kilometre speed limit around Australia. Who would put up with that? Nobody. But we're prepared to put up with this because we're driven by this fear narrative. And as a nation, like the rest of the world, we've become averse to risk. You know, we forget that when a, when a baby is born, it is, birth, it, it, is, it is birthed next to the toilet uh, in an, an, an anatomical sense. You know, the baby, as it, as it leaves the birth canal, it's, it's uh, inoculated with all the bacteria, the health the bacteria from the mother and from the area in which it, it emerges into the earth. It's, it, if, if the world today had its way, it, the baby would be born in a completely sanitised, you know, cotton wool environment. And, and our children are the same. We're, we've got this thing about stranger danger, but most people don't realise that the majority of abuse that happens to children is intrafamilial. Only a tiny fraction of it is stranger danger. And yet we've got mums running around in four-wheel drive cars, having road accidents, causing uh, havoc at school pickup times, picking up the kids because the kids aren't allowed to walk two blocks home. Um, the kids aren't allowed to catch a bus to go to school. Um, you know, every child at school gets a certificate for some kind of merit, even though it doesn't demonstrate any. So when we get to a stage in life where our kids are in a workforce, if their boss criticises them, they cave in because they, they're not used to being, they're not used to having to work uh, for their, for their, uh, for their uh, gratification, for their achievement. It's all given to them without any. So I, I just believe that our societal immune system is going the way of our physical immune system. we we have to take risks. We have to live in an, an environment that's dirty. Uh, kids need to eat dirt. Uh, that's how they build up their immune system. That's how they get used to germs and bacteria. I used to lick snails when I was a kid, you know, and now I pay, if I wanted to, years ago I would have paid $100 to go and eat snails in a restaurant. I mean, we just, we, we, we've lost the plot in so many ways. And and I probably pushed a lot of buttons with some people who will hear this, but um I, I, you know, I've, I've been with, I've flown with young co-pilots, young first officers who've come through that millennial shift and they, they can't take criticism uh, and they know everything. And, uh, you know, I've flown with guys who are straight out of training and, they, and it's their time to fly and they're the co-pilot and there's a thunderstorm ahead and you say to them, what's your plan? Are you, how are you going to manage that thunderstorm? Are we going to go around that or which way are you going to go? Uh, and their answers are just, uh, typical of someone who's got a lot of book knowledge but no experience. Mm-hmm. And when you try and pass on your experience, and I always do it by asking questions mm-hmm. uh, or putting them in a position to ask me a question, I think that's a really good way to mentor, um, they're reluctant to do that because they feel like they've got to have all the answers. Uh, and I've often been asked by a, a, a very junior pilot with my 32 years in command, oh, what do you think What do you think we should do here? And I'll look at him and I'll say, honestly say, I actually don't know at the moment. Uh, I mean, it's okay to say that you don't know, but we're, we're training kids to believe everything's got to be perfect and everything's got to be by the book. And, um, and yet we, we, we have latitudes in the way we operate an aeroplane that allow us to go outside the book in the interest of safety. Like, yeah. um, don't go through that thunderstorm, carry enough fuel so that you can spend a bit more time in the air going around it. So anyway, I mean, there's a dozen programs we could do if you yeah. were gay. Yeah. So as far as flying, will you fly again? 
nah, I, I probably doubt I'll ever fly again, even as a passenger. I'm, I probably have to drive everywhere. I mean, I don't know. I no, I wouldn't. I won't manipulate an airplane again. I've, um, you know, I've, I've made it clear in the video. I've, I've flown. I don't know, thirty-five thousand hours. Uh, I've done twenty-two thousand takeoffs and landings. I've carried six million people over twelve million miles. Um, I think the human body's only got twenty-five thousand flying hours in it, and I've exceeded that by a great deal. My bones are sore and. You know, I've got uh, tendon problems and all that sort of stuff from being strapped in a five-point harness for 10, 12 hours a day. Um, no, I, I'll look at aeroplanes go over. Every now and then a big military transport flies down the valley of the farm where I live and I can see straight in the cockpit window the big C-17 and I'll shed a tear and think, wow, lucky devils. Um, but um, no, my flying days, I believe, I've said this in interviews, I think the last 68 years has been about getting me to this point I'm at now. Right. And, so, and so this point is to try and re-inject a humble, a humble reappraisal of where we are as a nation as, and as a people. And we have to go back to believing in something other than self. And we have to go back to believing in those things that made this country a beautiful place to live. And that doesn't include apartheid, although we've conducted apartheid for 230 years. Um, I'm so mindful of I've got a hundredth of what our Aboriginal people have been through in the last 230 years by looking at the fact that I can't walk into a shop in, you know, without having a vaccine passport now, that I'm limited in so many ways and that uh, I'm being condemned by so many people because of my decision. Uh, and they didn't have a decision about the colour of their skin. They didn't have a choice. Uh, they had a government running in this country that was beautiful, that was natural and it was holistic and they had a health system that worked and everything they everything they did worked and here we are and i i apologized at the rally the last rally i attended to the first nations people for putting up with us for 230 years and um yeah i i feel every every morning my wife and i wake up with a cloud and we talk about it and then we have a prayer and we study the bible a bit and then we feel better and we go on and do the things we've got to do but um for me, it's, it doesn't matter what the medical procedures people have, have, the choices they've made now. There's a lot of people messaging me saying, I've held the line as long as I can. I can't do it anymore. And I say to them, it's okay. You know, you, you have to make your own decisions and you're going to be loved and supported no matter what you do. And please don't give up on the fight for freedom. Just because you've, you've, had to, you've been trapped into this situation, don't give up on the fight for freedom um, because that's more important than anything at the moment. And a lot of people will have the vaccine and, and not be affected by it. Mm. And that's really good. That is really good. I'm really glad because I don't want to see lots of people affected, but there are lots of people who are. And now mm. that it's the decision we're forced into that's isolating us from others. Not, you know, I could be double vaccinated and go around and tell somebody I'm not and they'd hate me and distance themselves from me. Or if they ask me the question, have you been vaccinated? And I say, that's none of your business. They'll automatically assume I'm having and distance themselves from me. Yeah, a friend of mine has got a question she asks her girlfriends when they ask her, and it's it's not very nice. But it's you know, um, to put it a milder way, she asks them, "When's the last time they had a pap smear?" And, yeah, uh, I saw that on Facebook this morning. Somebody yeah. put on their uh, profile um, a ring around, oh, sorry, a ring around their face, and it said, "I've just had my." <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Yeah. I thought that was it. Have you ever read any of Richard Bach's books? 
Oh, I did. Yeah, Jonathan Livingston, the Seagull. That was one of his, wasn't? Well, it? that's his most famous books. But he's he's an he's a pilot, and everything everything he writes about comes from that that flying spirit, that pilot. You know, his books are amazing. You would love them. You would absolutely love them. Bridge Across Forever One is an amazing book. Uh, there's a book about hypnotism. He talks. He tells the story of a hypnotist and the way that how we can be hypnotized. I remember in that book, there's a guy on stage who's been hypnotized to believe that he is in a in a, a circular prison made of sandstone and he's beating against these invisible walls. But because he believes that his hands start bleeding because he really believes he's inside this prison. Fascinating. Richard Barker had him on the show about 10 years ago. Fascinating man. You'd yeah. love his books. You'd Have you ever read them. any of Ellen G. White's books? No, no. Have you ever heard of her? No. Mm-mm. You haven't? Well, it's funny because she's the most prolific author in history. What's her name? Ellen? Ellen G. White. Ellen G. White. And is she, um, she's obviously left her body. When was she writing? Oh, she started writing in the mid-1800s. Uh, she oh. wrote a book, a bestseller called The Great Controversy about the battle between good and evil. It's worth reading. And it's funny, most, most people have never heard of her and she's the most prolific author in history. There you go. Ellen. And so, yeah. but she's, the reason that most people probably haven't heard of her is that she's Christ-centred. Uh, you know, she's everything she writes about is about her faith and, and the things that she's experienced and um, very profound. Her book, The Great Controversy, is so timely for today and it was written in the mid to late 1800s. It's, yeah. it's describing everything that we're going through right now. Interesting, isn't it? It is, yeah. Graham, we've been yakking for about two hours. Hmm. What are you going to do with all of this? <laughs> I'm going to put I'm going to put most of it up on YouTube and, and then I'll I'll um, edit it I'll edit out pieces. Yeah, I'll yeah. I'll edit out you know smaller chunks. But yeah, it's going to take some time to do that. But um, thank you so much for talking with me and sharing your story with us on the show. It's been My a real blessing. Great talking to you too, Karen. Thank you. Incredible to hear Graham's story, wasn't it? Uh, that question I asked him about why he made his choice about leaving leaving uh, his, his illustrious career uh, was really interesting. It was really interesting to hear him, you know, diving into wanting answers, like looking into. Uh, that was really interesting. We were just having a discussion then about um, the pharmaceutical industry, and I was just reading out something to him I saw on Facebook this morning, which I thought was really interesting, something that major platforms will take me down for saying, but I'll say it anyway. I saw this post by a woman who said, I, wanted, I would like to dispel the myth that the pharmaceutical industry is in the business of health and healing because, in fact, what the pharmaceutical industry is is in the business of doing is disease maintenance and symptoms management. They are not in the business to cure cancer or to cure Alzheimer's or to cure heart disease because if they were, they would be, in fact, putting themselves out of business. <laughs> now, this woman was a 15-year veteran selling pharmaceutical sales. And so like Graham, she was doing something that paid her very well and gave her a great lifestyle. But then she started looking at what she was doing and asking questions and thought, hang on, this stuff that I'm selling people is supposed to be curing disease and, and making people better, and it's actually not. So it's interesting, isn't it? I was just telling Graham that I started looking at health and healing when I was a teenager when I saw my mum hate herself to death. I was telling my girlfriend last night that uh, 
you know, disease doesn't come from airborne particles that attack us. Disease doesn't come from anything outside of ourselves. It actually comes from within ourselves and what we do with our energy. And I saw my mother hate my father and then fight and violence went on. And then dad eventually left her for a pretty young 23-year-old model and uh, rang her from overseas to say, I'm leaving you. I'm in love with somebody else. And I just watched her hate herself into illness. It was so obvious to me that her hatred of him and her self-loathing and self-hatred, like she was in her mid-40s and by the time she was 50, she was completely riddled with cancer. So the fact that she was getting fatter and she was losing her looks and her husband had left her for this young, pretty model, uh, yeah, it's the, it's the, the disease is the disease within us. It's our own emotion. It's our own thoughts that causes illness. And people will argue with me and say, what about babies that are born with illnesses and blah, blah, blah. And that's, a, that's another story, which I often go into on the shows about what we choose our soul plan from our broader perspective. When we come into this physical lifetime, like I was telling Graham, my girlfriend was born thalidomide affected she was born without thumbs and a short arm and most of her deformities were internal she died in her 40s but she left a led a life fraught with illness fraught with illness she was ill 90 percent of the time but she still lived and she still loved her life and uh, she she came on the spiritual journey with me and she read the books that I asked her to read and we used to discuss them. And yeah, she, she, she led an amazing life, even though she had a lot of illness and a lot of deformity. But yes, um, I started to look into why people get sick and I got my answers really early on. I did five years full-time studying naturopathy, but I realized that illness, the, the over, you can overcome illness as simple as meditating and touching that part of you that is brilliance that is pure positive energy, that is love, that is your soul. To allow that energy to flow through your body can alleviate pretty much every illness unless you've got some soul plan to keep it there. Yeah. But like Esther would say, the teachings of Abraham, somebody asked her, so are you saying that belief is everything? She's saying, yep. They're saying, yep. They're saying, so you're telling me that if somebody cuts off their arm and they believe it'll grow back, it will? And Abraham answered, absolutely it's all in the power of your belief right wow how powerful are we and yet we've seen people that are ill that haven't cured themselves even when they believed they could so what's up with that like i remember christopher reeves you know remember the one of the original superman who had the horse accident and then he was a paraplegic he and his wife looked into so many ways to cure his spinal injury and he had a real belief in that it could be cured but he died not having realized that in his physical form. And I wonder, you know, how he'll come back into another life with that desire to, <clears throat> to understand what healing is having struggled in this physical life. Because we have to remember that this life is not the only life. Like there is a continuum. There is an everlasting, ever-evolving, ever-expanding continuum of desire and life and more life and more life. So yes, we are in extraordinary times and these times are asking us to step up, to step up into faith, to step up into trust, to step up into really contacting that part of us that is that greater part of us, that part of us that lives outside of fear, that part of us that is rooted in truth and intelligence and infinite possibility and infinite, infinite creative potential. 
and armed with that as our guiding force, inspiring our minds, anything is possible and we can create any life we want. We can create a new world. And that's what we're being asked to do in all of this, with all of this that's happening. So thanks again for watching and listening. And uh, who's coming up into the inner sanctum? I don't know. I'll talk about that on another show. It's been a long show. <laughs> Somebody, we had Serena Faith Masterson in the inner sanctum yesterday morning. Oh, my God, that was amazing. I will be uploading the highlights in the next couple of weeks. But um, we're online with her for about two, three hours. And she was incredible. She was just incredible. As I said, I, when I was saying to Graham, she was brought up in a satanic cult and tortured as a child and a baby. Uh, we didn't go in too much into that, but her healing journey was incredible. And now she's stepping out there as the healer and the teacher. She is just amazing. Uh, so she was yesterday and somebody else is coming in, but I'm online every week teaching deliberate creation and uh, chatting to the tribe. And we're a fabulous tribe of incredible people all doing their thing to uplift this world. Why don't you join us? Remember, if you haven't already, check out the book Awakened by Death and I will see you next time. Thanks again for tuning in. Bye for now.